If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to share us and subscribe so you don't miss our next show. We'd love to talk with you again. Good afternoon, everyone. We're wrapping up another week, and I hope yours has been productive and enjoyable. We had both the Republican and Democrat contenders sparring on their respective debate stages over the past few days. Strangely enough, both parties have a similar, unusual situation. On the Republican side, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis qualified for this last debate before the actual primary voting begins. But Trump, again, stayed out and ran another competing event on Fox or something or other. I didn't watch that. I figured I'd show him the same respect he's shown everyone else. None. On the Democrat side, Joe Biden and the Democratic National Convention have decided that there really won't be any primaries. They continue their candidate, and thus voter suppression, in hopes of delivering Sleepy Joe his undeserved coronation. It's fitting that these are the two that the respective parties seem dead set on pitting against each other, again, they have the same disrespect for democracy and fair play. Democratic candidates Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips went ahead and organized their own event. As such, it was predictably underwhelming, being held at a Doubletree Hotel, but more significant for its true grassroots effort. The Democratic debate was earlier in the week, so I waited until I had at least audio of both to begin working on today's episode. I was unable to get good audio of the Democratic debate. It was held on a Cirrus satellite radio station, and my attempt to sign up would not work for some reason. I had to search for video from other sources and after the fact, and the audio and video quality was very poor. Whoever ran sound for that event should not quit their day job. Similarly, the Republican debate, hosted by CNN, was kept behind a paywall, and I had no avenue to grab the video, but I was able to listen. We will start with the Republicans, but I will try to bring the Democrats in, subject by subject, if there is any overlap on a topic. Try to make it seem like they're debating each other right now. The tone and answers from the competing camps you will see is very different and in stark contrast to one another. It makes me hope even more that these folks are able to overcome the obstacles in their respective ways and grab their party's nomination so they can square off in the general. Just hours ago, the Republican field narrowed once again. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie ended his bid for the presidency. So, with one fewer candidate in the running, let's start with the decision voters here in Iowa are about to face. That's right. Chris Christie has bowed out. He fought long and hard, but he just never had a chance. He had a standout message in this GOP field of kid glove-wearing candidates. While they danced around the elephant in the room, the big, orange, indicted elephant, afraid to really call him out, Big Chris was on the Cheeto like a dog on a bone. Unfortunately, that message doesn't sell with the majority of the GOP voters. I think it was a welcome one to independents, but the base statistically likes their gloves soft as a baby's ass when they touch Trump. In this light, while Haley and DeSantis' softballs look weak to me, they are well calculated to this audience, so at least strategically correct. Governor DeSantis, why should voters who are looking for an alternative to the current frontrunner, former President Trump, vote for you rather than former Governor Haley? Okay. I'm going to cut as much BS out of these clips as possible. By that I mean personal attacks on rivals and repetitive catchphrases. My edits are not an attempt to twist candidates' words to say something other than what they meant to say. It's just not value added. The full debate can be found if you want to check and torture yourself. Honestly, these are pretty much exclusively found in the Republican debate. These two do not like each other and it shows. The two Democrats were refreshingly cordial and supportive of one another. Donald Trump's running to pursue his issues. Nikki Haley's running to pursue her donors' issues. I'm running to pursue your issues. This is our first example of a repetitive catchphrase. 
DeSantis said this over and over through the whole debate. It was annoying, but it's catchy, it's short, and you remember it. So whoever wrote it did a good job. I'm the only one running that's delivered on 100% of the promises that I've made. We've delivered huge victories in the state of Florida, things that Republicans have been asking for for a generation. I'm also the only one running that has beaten the left time and time again. We beat the teachers union on universal school choice. We beat Soros on crime. We beat Fauci on COVID. We beat the Dems on election integrity. And I beat the left by banning China from buying land in the state of Florida. I'm the only one that's gonna be able to lead this country's revival. Uh, I'm asking for your support and I won't let you down. Governor Haley, a response? Well, I think this is a time that we know that we need a new generational leader. We have watched our country be in disarray. We see the world on fire and we need someone who's had executive experience. I've been a two-term governor that took a double-digit unemployment state and turned it into an economic powerhouse. I was at the UN. I dealt with Russia, China, Iran every day. Good opening statements from both, I must say. Haley would then launch into an attack on DeSantis. I'll leave it in, but trim it up as much as possible. But you're going to find out tonight that there's going to be a lot of Ron's lies that have happened. There are at least a couple of dozen so far that he's done. So what we're going to do is rather than have him go and tell you all these lies, you can go to DeSantisLies.com and look at all of those. There's at least two dozen lies that he's told about me, and you can see where fact checkers say exactly what's going to happen and exactly why it's every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night. You mentioned that website so many times in the course of the evening that I really think it got to be counterproductive. We get it. Move on. The zinger was fun, though. I give her credit. Now, let's introduce our Democratic candidates. Well, please welcome Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson once again. seconds uh, the candidates will have for an opening statement and we're going to begin with Congressman Phillips. Uh, Josh, thank you and hello conventioneers. I want to thank you all for being here. But I'm going to start by saying the quiet part out loud and that is Americans want to turn the page from Donald Trump and Joe Biden and I suspect most of you in this room want to turn the page to the future. We all know that but I don't believe everybody knows that the truth is if that election happened today between Trump and Biden Donald Trump wins. It's the truth. Joe Biden has the lowest approval numbers in modern history. He's losing in every battleground state. The last Wall Street Journal poll shows him losing to Donald Trump by four points and losing to Nikki Haley by 17 points. So I believe in winning and I believe the Democrats are sleepwalking into disaster. Why? Because the Democratic Party right now is trying to pursue a coronation instead of a competition. And that is why I celebrate my friend uh, and esteemed colleague here, Marianne Williamson. And why are Americans angry? Why are Americans angry? Well, life is unaffordable. We've got chaos at our southern border, in many cities in our country. We have wars overseas. People are sick of dysfunction and division and nonsense. The lack of common sense in Washington, D.C. And if you're like me, you're probably really disgusted with both parties right now. Really disgusted. And I understand that because I'm one of you. I'm part of the exhausted majority of the United States of America. I'm also a father, I'm a husband, and I'm a gold star son. I lost my dad in the Vietnam War in 1969. I'm an entrepreneur, I've led businesses, I chaired the board of the health system, I was a regent at a university, 
I'm a three-term member of Congress. I'm the second most bipartisan member of Congress. That includes all the governors, too, by the Gotta way. Got to wrap it up, sir. And, and I'm also... I'm sorry? Almost out of time. Oh, okay. Well, and also, and I'm also a member of, a former member of House Democratic leadership. I woke up the morning after the 2016 election. My daughters were in tears. I promised them I would do something. I flipped a district that had been red for 60 years, made it a Democratic district, and now... I'm doing the same thing to beat Donald Trump once again. I will beat either one of the GOP nominees. I will return decency and common sense to the White House. I will reduce costs. I will reduce chaos and restore the American dream. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Congressman. Appreciate it. Mr. Williamson, take a few extra seconds if you like. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I'm running for president because for the last 50 years, there has been a war on the middle class in this country. In the 1970s, the average American couple could afford a house, they could afford a car, they could afford a yearly vacation. One salary could support a family of four, one parent could afford to stay home with the children, and they could afford to send their kids to college. That was called a thriving middle class. You cannot have a thriving democracy where there is no thriving middle class. But all that has changed, and that middle class has collapsed. And that was strategized. Over the last 50 years, there has been a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1%. So that now a majority of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. A majority of Americans cannot afford to absorb a $500 unexpected expenditure. 70% of Americans say that they live with chronic economic insecurity and anxiety, bound by the invisible chains of economic stress. And that is the new status quo in America. And that is because the government itself is held hostage by corporations. We are no longer functioning as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Abraham Lincoln said that the men who died at Gettysburg died so that that dream would not perish from the earth, but it is perishing now. We are a government of the corporations and by the corporations and for the corporations a matrix of corporate overlords that own Washington and control this country. From, from insurance companies to pharmaceutical companies to big food companies, big agricultural companies, big chemical companies, gun manufacturers, big oil and defense contractors. They have turned Washington into a system of legalized bribery. That status quo, that unholy alliance between government and corporate power will not disrupt itself. It is time for the people to step in. And back to Iowa with the Republicans and the knives are out. Nikki Haley is not somebody that has been willing to stand in and fight on behalf of conservatives. You know, she ran for governor saying she was going to do universal school choice and she caved to the teachers union. She didn't deliver that. In Florida, I delivered the largest expansion of school choice in the history of the United States. I beat the teachers union and you know what the results are? When she was governor of South Carolina, she was rated 50th in education, dead last. You know where Florida is under my watch? Number one in the nation. Your response, Governor Haley. Why don't we talk about the fact that if we're going to say this, when Ron was representing Florida, he said that he promised not to raise the debt limit when he got to D.C., yet he raised the debt limit by hundreds of billions of dollars. He used to support Ukraine. He supported Ukraine when President Obama was in office. Now he's trying to copy Trump and saying that he no longer supports Ukraine and doesn't want to give them foreign aid anymore. He also goes and says that 
He wants to talk about me insulting Iowans. Iowans know when you're telling a joke. The fact that he's only running in one state is not the way you win president. I'm running in all states. But he should tell Iowans why he authored legislation to ban the renewable fuel standard that's so important to Iowans' economy and the fact that he co-sponsored five different pieces of legislation to get rid of it. And also, then he also said he would never do anything with Social Security. Yet he voted three times to raise the retirement age of Social Thank Security. You, so if you're going to talk about what you said Thank and you, what you did, I think you've got your own explaining to do rather well, than telling lies we're, about we're, and now it's like a seance as we listen to the voice of the ghost of Chris Christie. Governor Haley, when, when uh, Governor Christie dropped out of the race just a few hours ago, he said the most important issue is, quote, the character of the candidate. Uh, Governor Christie also said he ran because he knew he would be the only Republican candidate to speak the truth about former President Donald Trump. Do you believe Donald Trump has the character to be president again? Well, I think the next president needs to have moral clarity. I think you need to have moral clarity to understand that it's taxpayer money, not your own money. I think you need to have moral clarity to understand that when you're dealing with dictators in the world, that we always have to fight for democracies and human rights and protecting Americans and preventing war. And so when you look at Donald Trump, I have said, I think he was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies, but his way is not my way. I don't have vengeance. I don't have vendettas. I don't take things personally. For me, it's very much about no drama, no whining, and getting results and getting them done. So I don't think that President Trump is the right president to go forward. I think it's time for a new generational leader that's going to go and make America proud again. That's what I'm going to try and do. Governor DeSantis, what is your response to Chris Christie? Do you believe Donald Trump has the character to be president again? Well, I'm running because I'm the guy that's going to be able to engineer a comeback for this country. I appreciated what President Trump did, but let's just be honest. He said he was going to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. He did not deliver that. He said he was going to drain the swamp. He did not deliver that. He said he was going to hold Hillary accountable, and he let her, let her off the hook. He said he was going to eliminate the debt, and he added $7.8 trillion to the debt. So we need to deliver and get this stuff done. Now back to New Hampshire, where the Democratic contenders speak about perceived voter suppression during the Democratic primaries from Joe Biden and the DNC. You're both campaigning here in New Hampshire. The president's name is not on the ballot. Sent a letter yesterday saying New Hampshire's meaningless. Would you characterize this congressman as voter suppression? Yes. In fact, I have that letter right here. I hope it goes in the National Archives on display because I think it's one of the most egregious affronts to democracy I've ever seen in my entire lifetime as an American, period. And I'll tell you what's a, yeah, by the way, voter ID, you know, if every American could easily get an ID, that's different. But the fact of the matter is if you are disabled or you are elderly or you live in a rural area where it's really hard, it's nonsensical. So that's voter suppression. But you know what else is voter suppression? What's happening right here, what's happening in Florida, what's happening in North Carolina, what they're trying to do in Massachusetts and other states. The Democratic Party should be investing in democracy, promoting debate, promoting candidates, and promoting voters. What are they doing? They're suppressing them. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm an affable, decent, common sense person that is telling you the truth. I know Marianne knows exactly the same thing. And your generation, all of you in this room, please take note. The parties are destroying democracy, period. Great. Ms. same question for you. Well, what Dean just said is absolutely correct. There is candidate suppression going on here. The DNC has decided, and it's been very overt about it, Joe Biden would be their candidate. Candidate suppression is a form of voter suppression. 
Every American should be automatically registered at the age of 18. Voting day should be on Saturday. Voting day should be a holiday. We should be doing everything possible to make it so that every American of voting age has their voice expressed. So any time, any way that there is a way of shutting people down, then that is a danger to our democracy. The political parties traditionally stood behind, they stood in the back, and the people decided who would be the candidate. It should be you, the people of, of New Hampshire, the people of every other state should decide who is the best Democratic nominee to beat either Donald Trump or Nikki Haley. However, what's going on now is the suppression, shutting down primaries, as Dean was saying. In my case, the invisibilization of my campaign in general, because there's a political media industrial complex. This is not the vision of the founders. There's not supposed to be a political elite or a political class. And let's be very clear. Thomas Jefferson said, the only safe repository for power in the United States is in the hands of the people, not the hands of those guys. And their idea that they've got this, yeah, like they got this in 2016. They don't got this. You do, and we do. Wow, no love lost for Biden. Let's see how the Republicans are feeling about Trump. I wish Donald Trump was up here on this stage. He's the one that I'm running against. He's the one that I wish would be here. He needs to be defending his record. Right now, he's not defending the fact that he allowed us to have $8 trillion in debt over four years that our kids are never going to forgive us for. The fact that he didn't deal with China when it came to stealing intellectual property. The fact that they gave us COVID. The fact that they've gone and continued to put up Chinese police stations and continue to threaten our military. He didn't do enough to make sure that we were really standing with our friends and doing some other things. What we need is a leader that's not looking at four years and eight years. We need a president that's looking at 20 and 30 years because I want my kids to have a good future. I want them to have one without debt, one where they can read, one with secure borders, one where we have law and order, and one where America is strong. All right, well, let's talk about the economy on both sides of the aisle. I want to talk about the economy, which, according to a recent Des Moines Register poll, shows that the economy is the top issue for caucus goers here. So, Governor Haley, the rate of inflation is down. Prices, though, are still high, and Americans are struggling to afford food, cars, and housing. What is the single most important policy that you would implement as president to make the essentials in Americans' lives more important. I think we have to acknowledge that Republicans and Democrats have both done this. I mean, the fact that they've done all of this wasteful spending, they did a $2.2 trillion COVID stimulus bill that expanded welfare that's now left us with 80 million Americans on Medicaid, 42 million Americans on food stamps. That's a third of our country. What I will do is I think it's time we have an accountant in the White House. We have to have someone that respects taxpayer dollars. And we'll start by clawing back $100 billion of unspent COVID dollars that are still out there. We'll go and instead of 87,000 IRS agents going after middle America, we'll go after the hundreds of billions of dollars of COVID fraud, one out of every $7. If 8% of our budget is interest, quit borrowing, cut up the credit cards. I had to balance a budget as governor. You have to balance a budget every day. Why is Congress the only group that refuses to balance a budget? We'll stop the spending. We'll stop the borrowing. We'll eliminate the pet projects and the earmarks. And I'll veto any spending bill that doesn't take us back to pre-COVID levels. And then we want to make sure that we allow the middle class to breathe. We're going to eliminate the federal gas and diesel tax in this country and cut taxes on the middle class and simplify those brackets. 
targets. And then we want to make the small business tax cuts permanent. They made corporate tax cuts permanent, but they made small business tax cuts temporary. Small businesses are the heartbeat of America. We need to prove it by making those tax cuts permanent. Governor DeSantis, what's your response? How would you make those essentials more affordable for Americans? Well, I disagree with uh, Ambassador Haley. We don't need an accountant in the White House. We need a leader in the White House, and that's what I would bring. I've spoken with Iowans, I'm visiting all 99 counties, uh, and also folks all across this country. The American dream is slipping away. People are working hard, they're getting the most out of their God-given ability, they're doing everything right, and they're falling further and further behind. Trying to afford a new home today, your monthly mortgage payment would probably be twice as much as what it would have been if you were starting out uh, five years ago. Uh, we have to make the economy work for those folks. Uh, yes, we're, I'm going to battle the spending. In Florida, uh, you look, you know, we have the national debt clock going up to 34 trillion. I see it. If you did a debt clock for the state of Florida, it would be counting down because we've paid down 25% of our state debt just since I've been governor. We're going to open up all energy for production because that will be deflated. We need to fly a flag of bold colors. Uh, carrying the banner of putting the American people first, not the pale pastels of the warmed-over corporatism of people like Nikki Haley. Governor Haley, I want to bring you in, but because uh, Governor DeSantis mentioned the gas tax, you do want to eliminate the federal gas tax, and that tax generated approximately $40 billion in 2022 and helps pay for road construction and repair. So how would you fix America's roads and bridges if you take that money away. When it comes to the gas tax, when we eliminate that federal tax, the money is collected in the states and they it send it to the feds. The feds attach a lot of strings to it and send it back. 75% comes from the state, 25% comes from the federal government. What they do when they add those strings is they pay for a lot of things that aren't roads, green spaces, sidewalks, all of those things, but they attach strings. I want that money to stay in the states. I want the states to be able to decide how to spend it. I don't want Washington bureaucrats deciding what we need for scenery and green space and all those other things. I want every state, including the state of Iowa, to make the decisions on how they spend their road spending instead of the federal government. Country. Governor DeSantis, at a CNN town hall last week, you said you support a flat tax, which is a single income tax rate for every American. Under your plan, would working families pay the same tax rate as billionaires? I would only do it if people are better off than they are now. I mean, I want people paying less taxes. Actually, if you think the last year we have numbers for, the federal government took in the highest percentage of taxes from the economy since World War II. And yet, they're going deep into debt. We have a spending problem in this country. It's not a tax problem in this country. And if you had something that was simple and transparent, uh, not only would that be better for economic growth, it's also better to end the weaponization of government. The IRS has been weaponized against conservatives going back to the Obama administration. I was there for that. No one's been held accountable for doing that. You look at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Department of Justice, the weaponization of federal power ends the day I become the president of the United States. There's going to be a new sheriff in town. We're going to restore the constitutional accountability that our founding fathers envisioned when they, when they formatted the Constitution. And, you know, I've talked to folks um, who uh, have overbearing federal agencies. I mean, you have farmers who have the EPA coming on their farmland because there's maybe a puddle there, waters of the United States. Give me a break. So we're going to reduce the size of government, but we're also going to reduce the scope of government. And in Florida, I've actually delivered on this. Florida has 
the lowest percentage of state government workers per capita in the country, and the cost of our state government employees is the lowest in the country. No wonder why we're paying down debt while we're cutting taxes for people. That's the way you do it. Governor DeSantis, 15-second point of clarification. The question was whether or not working families would pay the same amount. They would pay. They would pay less than what they're paying now. The way I view it is, okay, and, I, and we, you'd exempt people, so you would pay no tax for for, for, for working class people. It would only be as you get above, because I think the first 40, 50 grand, that's just to subsist. And even some places, you can't even do that. So you would have no tax up to a certain point, and then it would just be a single rate. So if somebody Thank makes $100,000, they pay a certain amount. If someone makes 200000 they pay. They you, make places. The only one that checked all the boxes uh, from the Iowa Renewable Fuel Standard, because I've actually visited all 99 counties. I've actually shown up to people's farms. I've sat and I've listened to people about what they're going through, uh, how their economy is structured, and how it's important that we're producing energy here in the United States. I never want to go hat in hand like Biden has done to Venezuela or Saudi and begging for energy. We're going to be able to open up production. We're going to choose Midland over Moscow. We're going to choose the Marcellus Shale over the Mullahs. And we're going to choose the Bakken over Beijing. Energy independence isn't even, it's not, it's good for consumers. It's good to reduce inflation. And it's one of the best things we can do for our national security. So we'll do that on day one. And we are going to reverse Biden's Green New Deal and the electric vehicle mandates. We'll save the American automobile. Bold colors versus pale pastels. DeSantis will go on to repeat this throughout the debate. Again, it's simple, it's effective, it's memorable. Whoever is writing for him is doing very well tonight. The Democrats also discuss the economy. All right, moving on, let's talk about the economy. A lot of kids in, in, in this room, uh, uh, in college, will be joining the workforce soon. It's got to be a little bit daunting. Big picture, and I know it's hard to summarize in a minute. What's your economic plan so that the next generation can enjoy the same opportunity we are? Ma'am. I have an economic bill of rights, which was based on an economic bill of rights that was articulated by Franklin Roosevelt. Universal health care, which uh, the majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want, and which is given to the citizens of every other advanced democracy. Universal health care, cancellation of the college loan debt, because they should never have existed. Tuition-free college and tech school, also given to the citizens of every other advanced democracy, and which we had in this country until the 1970s subsidized childcare, paid family leave, guaranteed sick pay, and a guaranteed living wage. Here in New Hampshire, you've still got a minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. A living wage in New Hampshire is a $17 an hour living wage. We now have 39% of Americans who report that they regularly skip meals because it's the only way that they can afford housing. We also need a domestic Marshall Plan to repair this country. The way our economy works today, and the Washington too often in cahoots with the trickle-down nonsense that causes this unjust economy, is ruining people's lives. And when I'm president, we're going to repair these lives, and we're going to repair our democracy, and we're going to repair our country. Thank you, man. Next question for you, sir. What's your economic plan? Well, let me start uh, at birth. I want to start something called the American Dream Accounts, where every single baby born in America starts his or her life with a $1,000 account. Can add $500 a year by the time you're 18 years old and you graduate high school, that money is yours to become an owner of a business, of a home. And if you do some national service for a year after high school, that's another $10,000. I think we've got to be a country from the beginning of our lives until the very end, we take care of people. That also means housing. 
We are seven million houses shy in the United States of America. We need to produce, and we can. Healthcare for all. We spend twice as much as any nation in the world. Our outcomes are mid-pack, and we let pharmaceutical companies charge us multiples of anybody in the world. Healthcare for all through Medicare for all. Education for all. Why are we a country that has $1.7 trillion in college debt costing some of you in this room $90 billion a year? It's nonsensical. And then Social Security towards the end of life. Ensure it exists, if it's, it needs to be amplified, and then most importantly, to create a fund by which those who've been successful can rededicate their Social Security benefits into a pool to share with those who are most vulnerable retirees in America. I sat in North Conway, New Hampshire just a couple weeks ago with two wonderful elderly ladies who make cereal, make cereal the last three nights of the year, of the month, because they don't have enough Social Security. $100 more a month makes all the difference. That's the kind of country we will be under my presidency. And both debates then turned to immigration. This has been one of the biggest years for illegal border crossings into the United States. Last month alone, 225,000 migrants illegally crossed the southern border. It's a record high, overwhelming the Border Patrol resources that are already stretched thin. Mayors across the country say their cities are being pushed to a breaking point. Governor DeSantis, former President Trump, famously promised to build a wall on the southern border. He obviously did not get that uh, done. You have promised to finish the job. How will you succeed where he failed? We will build a wall. We will actually have Mexico pay for it in the way that I thought that Donald Trump was. We're going to charge fees on remittances that workers send to foreign countries. Billions of dollars uh, will build the wall. He also promised record deportations. Donald Trump deported fewer people than Barack Obama did when he was president. Biden's let in 8 million people just in four years. They all have to go back. We have to enforce the rule of law in this country. Think about what's happening to our country. Just this week, we saw the news that a, high, that a school in Brooklyn, New York, had the kids stay home. They did, were not able to go to school, told you can't go get an in-person education. Why? Because they're common. the city's commandeering the school to house illegal aliens in it. Talk about putting Americans last. You're putting these kids out of an education because you can't control the border. Biden has failed in this endeavor. He has not taken care that the laws of this country be faithfully executed. Much. So, Governor Haley, <laughs> Governor DeSantis and also Donald Trump uh, are attacking you for that comment in 2015 in which you said undocumented immigrants should not be called, quote, criminals. At the time, the full context is you said, quote, we don't need to talk about them as criminals. They're not. They're families that want a better life and they're desperate to get here, unquote. Do you still feel that way? I saw them. When I was at the United Nations, I saw them. That doesn't mean we should let them into our country. I mean, first of all, I will tell you that when I was governor of South Carolina, we passed the toughest illegal immigration law in the country. Obama sued us over it, and we won. We fought Obama on illegal immigration. We fought Obama on migrant kids. We fought Obama on Syrian refugees. We fought Obama on Guantanamo Bay um, prisoners, I have always said we are a country of laws. The second we stop being a country of laws, we give up everything this country was founded on. But I will tell you, in one, passing that toughest illegal immigration law in the country, we passed E-Verify, which I want to take national, which is where businesses have to prove that the people they hire are in this country legally. I passed it within six months of being governor. 
Ron didn't pass it for five years. He only waited to pass it when he decided to run for president. What we need to do is not just ban a wall. We need to put 25,000 Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. We need to defund sanctuary cities once and for all. No more safe havens for illegal immigrants. We need to make sure we go back to the Remain in Mexico policy so that no one even steps foot on U.S. soil. And instead of catch and release, we need to go to catch and deport. That's the only way we'll stop the incentives of these illegal immigrants coming across. Biden turned around and gave half a million Venezuelans temporary protective status. That's half a million driver's licenses, half a million social security numbers. All that does is incentivize them to pick up and call you, their family members and Thank tell you, them. Governor. We have to realize my parents came here illegally. They came the right way 50 years ago. They put in the time, they put in the price. They are offended by what's happening on the border. And my mom would always say, if they don't follow the laws to come into this country, they won't follow the laws when they are in this country. And we have to start treating this like it is. This is putting harm on our schools, on our hospitals. Taxpayers are paying for it. You see these mayors are now upset about it. The only reason Eric Adams is now upset, why? He shouldn't be a sanctuary city then. That's why we have to defund sanctuary cities. Now Governor Abbott finally did to them what's been happening to Texas for so long. We've got to put an end to this. It's dangerous Thank and you. it doesn't Thank even you, kill Governor. the fentanyl Thank you. that's Governor DeSantis. There are more than 10 million undocumented immigrants already living in the United States, uh, according to Pew Research. Will any of them be allowed to stay in the United States under your administration? The number of people that will be amnestied when I'm president is zero. We cannot do an amnesty in this country. Uh, first of all, it's going to do is cause more people to want to come illegally. So you got to enforce the law. It's got to be consistent. People got to know it's there. You also have to remove benefits uh, for people who are here illegally. You know, California, you can go illegal alien and you get free health insurance coverage. You're here illegally and they're doing that? Uh, we should not let states provide these benefits. You know, in Florida, obviously, we don't do that. We don't allow the driver's license and all that. But some states do, and it creates a magnet for people coming in. So federally, no benefits, no enticements to come in. And then the states, we're going to crack down on sanctuary states and sanctuary cities. And I showed the hypocrisy of all this uh, back in 2022, because we have a program to transport illegal aliens to sanctuary jurisdictions. And one of the places we sent 52 beautiful, liberal Martha's Vineyard. And you know what? These are folks that were on their high horse saying how they were a sanctuary jurisdiction, saying nobody's illegal, all refugees are welcome. That's what they had in their town. The minute even 50 came up, they called a state of emergency and deported them off the island the next day. How do you think Texas feels? How do you think all these other communities feel that are overwhelming, uh, being overwhelmed? So we cannot have liberal elites in this country imposing policies on the rest of us that they are not willing to deal with the consequences of themselves. Governor Haley, by the, when you're president, will any of the more than 10 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. be allowed to stay in the country under your administration? You have to deport them. And the reason you have to deport them is they're cutting the line. You've got people who have done this and tried to go through the right way. You can't have them go and jump the line and suddenly do that. And that is actually what will get them to stop coming, is when they do realize they get to the wall and they have to turn around and go back. It's a dangerous process of what happens for them to try and migrate here. But when I was at the
the United Nations and we have this, which is another reason why we need to have Trump here defending himself and talking about what he would do going in the future because it's a problem. I was on the ground in Honduras and Guatemala and what we saw is a lot of the reason why they were coming from there is because of gangs and drugs. And so what we did was we had our military go and train them on how to deal with gangs. We went and put drug boats on the water to keep the drugs from coming. But we said, you have to have them processed from here. You can't have them come. We were able to stop that flow. We've got to go back to do that. But we need to end it once and for all. Donald Trump didn't do that. That's why he needs to be here de debating on this stage right now. Moving on now to immigration. Obviously, the answer's a ways from the southern border. We're going to sit in our living rooms every night on TV as we see a record number of migrants crossing. Uh, Democratic mayors are saying that they need to breathe this and the busloads that are showing up. So my question to both of you, I'm going to start with you, Congressman. What can be done in the short term to address the issue that many believe also has national security implications? Well, the thing about how do we improve this process overall? Let me start with this. Most of you in this room, not all, but most of you in this room, had foremothers and forefathers that came to this country for the same reason that mine did. In my case, a Jewish family escaping pogroms in Eastern Europe in the late 19th century. But this country is about immigration. We must remain that way. We must welcome and promote and encourage the best and brightest around the world people who want to pursue the American dream. I'm a Democrat who will tell you, having been to the southern border twice, it is an unmitigated, shameful, inexcusable disaster. And it is a national security issue. The foremost priority of an American president is to keep this country secure. We spend a trillion dollars, trillion dollars a year on our military, and yet tens of thousands of people per day are approaching our border because our asylum law is so ridiculous. A failure of Democrats and Republicans for generations. Under my presidency, we will have border security, northern border and southern border. Most importantly, a humane immigration policy that welcomes new Americans and changes the asylum policy so that people declare asylum, have it uh, adjudicated in their country of origin, and save the $10,000 that they are spending now with Mexican cartels to bring them across the border. That's how the United States <coughs> operates. Same question for you, ma'am, the immig immigration. We must deal with the immigration uh, problem on the level of both symptom and cause. On the level of symptom, Congress has failed us miserably, not just presidents. We need to have the proper infrastructure so that people can be interviewed for asylum. If they have the establishment of credible fear, then of course they are moved on to their next step, getting into integration into American society. If not, they must go home uh, to their country of origin. But no wall is going to fix this. No surveillance system is going to fix this. We need to address root causes. Why are so many people in such desperate straits that they're trying to get here? U.S. foreign policy is involved. There are two main categories, economic devastation, and America needs to admit to itself how much our own policies in Latin America over the last two decades contributed mightily to the destabilization of so many of those economies. We have to be willing to help restabilize. We need to, above all, we need to remove the sanctions in Venezuela and the sanctions in Cuba. Secondly, as, as Dean mentioned, people are seeking to escape the violence of the drug cartels. The United States of America needs to end the war on drugs. This, will, this is not helping at the southern border. It will actually help at the southern border to remove the black market that these drug cartels depend on. As, as president, I will, not only on this issue, but on many issues, not just address symptoms in a transactional way, but address root causes in a transformational way. Whoa. What just happened there? Was that Democrats and Republicans both acknowledging that there is a problem at our borders and the current paradigm is not working? Of course, the nuanced ideas are different, but the core beliefs are tracking somewhat. That was very refreshing.
And now we pivot to foreign policy. Governor, thank you. Let's turn to foreign policy. You have expressed different visions for how the U.S. should approach the international conflicts. And I want to start with Ukraine. It's been nearly two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, and there is still no end in sight to that war. Governor Haley, you say that this is a, quote, war about freedom, that Ukraine must win. Governor DeSantis says, quote, we need to bring this war to an end. Do you believe he shares your commitment to a Ukrainian victory? Nobody knows what he believes, because when President Obama was in office, he supported foreign aid to Ukraine. Now he's copying Trump and trying to act like he doesn't want to support Ukraine. But let me tell you why Ukraine should matter. First of all, I don't think we should give cash to any country, friend or foe, because you can't follow it, you can't hold it accountable. I don't think we need to put troops on the ground, and Ukrainians want to win this themselves. But dictators always say, always do what they say they're going to do. China said they were going to take Hong Kong. They did. Russia said they were going to invade Ukraine. They, we watched it. China says Taiwan is next. We better believe them. Russia said once they take Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. Those are NATO countries, and that puts America at war. This is about preventing war. It's always been about preventing war. If we support Ukraine, that's only 3.5% of our defense budget. Biden and no one else is telling the American people the truth about that. The Europeans have put in more than that, and they should. It's their neighborhood. But this is a pro-American, freedom-loving country. And we better remember that you have to be a friend to get a friend. And we needed a lot of friends September 12th. We've got to make sure that we're having the backs of the right friends. Because if Russia wins, China wins. There's a reason the Taiwanese want us to help the Ukrainians. And that's because they know if Ukraine wins, China won't invade Taiwan. This is about preventing war. Governor well. I supported Trump's policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia, Ukraine, and it was successful. Um, you know, the Biden policy has not been, but Nikki Haley is basically a carbon copy of what Biden is. It's an open-ended commitment. They want another $108 billion. They will not tell you uh, when the, the, uh, they've achieved their goal. Uh, and this is going to go on maybe hundreds of billions more into the future. I think a lot of people have died. We need to find a way to end this. Because our priorities for national security, of course, the border, which we talked about, and people like Nikki Haley care more about Ukraine's border than she does about our own southern border, which is wrong. But we also have to look at what's the top threat to this country. It's the Chinese Communist Party. We are not doing what we need to do to have adequate hard power in the Indo-Pacific. And here's the thing. We don't have enough resources being $35 trillion in debt to continue doing hundreds of billions of dollars. We've got to focus on our issues here at home, and we've got to deal with the top threat that we face, which is China. That, I, what I will tell you is this is the lie they're telling the American people over and over again. It is so wrong to say this. They're saying you have to choose between Ukraine or Israel, or Israel and, the, and securing the border. Supporting Ukraine is 3.5% of our budget. I don't want cash going. It's equipment and it's ammunition. If we support Ukraine and Israel... That's only 5% of our defense budget. So if you're going to borrow that? If we support Ukraine, Israel, and secure the border, that's less than 20% of Biden's green subsidies. You do not have to choose when it comes to national security. This is about keeping Americans safe. This is about preventing war. This is about keeping our military men and women from having to fight a war. And you only do that when you focus on national security, not telling lies to the American people that they have to choose. That is wrong. That's never been the case. So here's the problem with what you're saying. 
she, she doesn't articulate how this comes to an end, except she was asked uh, after the last debate uh, by, I believe, Megyn Kelly, and she said, you bring it to an end by bringing Ukraine into NATO. But of course, we're a NATO country, so if you bring Ukraine into NATO, that puts the United States at war. Megan said that to her, and then she basically gave a word salad uh, as to how you go from there. Let's stay on foreign policy. I want to turn to the Israel-Hamas war. You both have said that you unequivocally support Israel. You both have called for the complete elimination of Hamas. Governor DeSantis, there are real disagreements within Israel about how to handle what happens in Gaza after the war against Hamas is over. Some Israeli cabinet officials are pushing for the mass removal of Palestinians from Gaza. Governor Haley told CNN last week she does not support that. Do you? So we got to support Israel in word and in deed, in public and in private. And they need to be able to finish the job. Joe Biden is kneecapping them. Uh, he'll say one thing, then he goes, and his base doesn't like Israel, so he's got to do all these other things. Uh, this is a time to recognize that they suffered the most deaths of Jews, murder of Jews since the Holocaust. Hamas wants a second Holocaust. They want to annihilate the state of Israel. So I think to be a good ally, uh, you back them in the decisions that they're making with respect to Gaza. Look, there's a lot of pluses and minuses with how you're doing this. But for us to be sitting in, in Washington, second-guessing them, I don't think that's the right way. We also have a disagreement, uh, Governor Haley and I, and when she was at the UN, she supported the idea of a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinian Arabs. The problem with that is the Palestinian Arabs don't recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. So doing a two-state solution doesn't create something that's going to lead to a lasting peace. It creates a stepping stone for Israel's destruction. So under no circumstances as president am I going to pressure Israel uh, to risk their security to do a so-called two-state solution. She was wrong when she embraced that, uh, and we're right to say we trust Israel to make these decisions. They're a good ally of ours. We should trust their judgment on these sensitive issues. Governor DeSantis, 15 seconds. 15 seconds clarification. Do you support the mass removal of Palestinians from Gaza? So as president, I am not going to tell them to do that. I think there's a lot of issues with that. But if they make the calculation that to avert a second Holocaust, they need to do that. I think some of these Palestinian Arabs, Saudi Arabia should take Thank some. You. Egypt should take some. They've never been willing to accept any of these folks you, in their own neighborhood. Thank you, Governor, Governor Haley. Well, first of all, we need to understand the reason we need to support Israel is Israel's a bright spot in a tough neighborhood. They are the tip of the spear when it comes to defeating terrorism. It has never been that Israel needs America. It has always been that America needs Israel. When I was at the United Nations, I fought every day for Israel. And if you would have listened to what I said at the United Nations, a two-state solution wasn't something that was possible because Israel would always come to the table and the Palestinians wouldn't. But right now, we have to make sure that Israel has the support that it needs. There should be three things. Give Israel whatever it wants to get the job done. Two, eliminate Hamas once and for all. And three, do whatever it takes to bring the hostages home. But um, There are growing fears of this war escalating into a broader regional conflict. And Governor Haley, just yesterday, the U.S. Navy shot down 21 missiles and drones fired by Iranian-backed militants in the Red Sea. Iranian-backed militants are now also attacking U.S. and Western interests in Syria and Iraq. Uh, your fellow South Carolinian Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is calling for the U.S. to conduct retaliatory strikes inside Iran. 
Would you order strikes inside Iran? When it comes to Iran, what we have to understand, there would be no Hamas without Iran. There would not be Houthis without Iran. There wouldn't be Hezbollah without Iran. And when you look at the strikes that are happening in Iraq and Syria, that is because of Iran. They're pulling the puppet strings. What we need to do is the idea that we've had over 130 strikes on our men and women in Iraq and Syria is unconscionable. We're supposed to have their backs. And Biden has been slow. He's been hiding in a corner and he hasn't dealt with it. We need to go and take out every bit of the production that they have that's allowing them to do those strikes. It's hugely important that we do that. And you can't do that if you have a secretary of defense that is in ICU and the president doesn't even know about it. What bothers me is how does Biden not talk to his secretary of defense every single day knowing that we have a war in Europe, a war in the Middle East, that we have our American military with strikes going on them. We've got brain injuries. My husband is deployed right now. As a military spouse, the idea that the Secretary of Defense would not even be in contact with the president, much less in contact with his staff, is unforgivable. Governor DeSantis. After the attacks against Israel, Anyone with half a brain knows Iran is behind this. They fund Hamas. They fund Hezbollah. Uh, we did a special session of legislature down in Florida. We expanded sanctions against Iran. If we were our own country, we'd be the 14th largest economy in the world. The root of this is Biden came into office, and he relaxed the sanctions on Iran. They've had massive amounts of money flooding into their country, just like under the Obama administration. They take that money, and they use it to fund jihad around the world. Uh, I, I'm the only one running for president that served uh, in the armed forces. I deployed uh, to Iraq back in 2007, 2008. Uh, so I understand what our, what our military goes through. I would never put our troops in harm's way like Biden is doing in the Middle East without defending them with everything they got. If you harm a, a hair on the head of one of our service members, you are going to have hell to pay. He's leaving them out to dry, and I think it's disgraceful for a commander-in-chief to do that. Thank you. And now we'll hear from the Democrats on their ideas for foreign policy. Let's check the foreign policy now. Plenty there to talk about, right? Uh, uh, Ms. Williamson, how would your administration handle Russia's invasion of Ukraine in contrast to how the Biden administration has handled it? Well, first of all, the United States does not have clean hands when it comes to how we dealt with NATO in the run-up to uh, the invasion and our Aegis missiles in Poland and elsewhere. However, none of that justifies the atrocious behavior of Vladimir Putin. For that reason, uh, the fact that I do feel that the United States needs to take a stand, that people such as Vladimir Putin do not, we do not need them thinking they can just grab a piece of a country as they want to. At the beginning, I was with uh, President Biden on this. Where I was not with him was on the line for as long as it takes. There has always had to be a, a negotiated settlement. We were all hoping that the counteroffensive staged by the Ukrainians would work, that it would push back the, the Russians. It hasn't. So that now we're in a stalemate. Now we're in a war of attrition. I do believe that it's time. There is no guarantee that if we continue with this, that Ukraine will do better. There is no guarantee of that. Uh, Vladimir Putin said that he wants to talk. And if, when I am president, I will receive military analysis that no, no civilian has. If I receive a military analysis that leads me to believe that what I just said is 100% true, I will be open to a conversation with Vladimir Putin. Thank you, ma'am. Well, I, I agree that everything we're going to talk about today should have been solved upstream. We could have prevented so many of the problems we're facing right now, both domestically and overseas. In 2014, when Joe Biden was vice president, he let Putin walk right into Crimea and took it with impunity. 
nothing to prevent it, nothing to do anything about it. And what does Putin do? We all know this. He takes an inch, he waits, and if no response, then he'll take a mile. This was all predictable, all predictable. So the answer is it should have been prevented years ago, but here we are now. And yes, we should help Ukraine defend itself because he is a tyrant, he is a disaster, and he is a very dangerous man. This is the most important part. My dad died in Vietnam. It was an unnecessary, sickening war. But the world then saw the United States gave up because it was a bad decision to begin with. They saw us exit Afghanistan in a total chaotic mess. And if we exit our support from Ukraine right now, mark my words, our adversaries around the world are watching. And if they see the United States once again fold, if they see us fold, we're in big trouble. So I wish this had never happened. I wish we were not spending tens of billions of dollars again litigating a war when we should be investing in American people and all of you in this room. That's why I serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I'm the ranking member of the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia Subcommittee because this is the most important investment of our lifetimes to make sure that we have peace around the world. Distinguished Congressman, perhaps even more complex situation involving Hamas and Israel, Palestinians. How would your administration uh, be different from the president's? Well, look, I respect Joe Biden, but he's been in Washington for 50 years. He is part of a generation of people in Washington who've done nothing else but serve in Washington. And they're looking at this crisis in the Middle East the same way after Israel was founded, the same bloodshed, the same cycle of violence for 75 years. And that's why I'm saying it's time for change. We need new leaders from the West Bank to the West Wing. And I think that's really important. I deeply love Israel. I'm a Jewish man, my family escaped pogroms, the Holocaust was real, and Jewish people need a place of refuge because when they came to the United States during the Holocaust, we were turned away. There needs to be a Jewish state. Benjamin Netanyahu is not a good man. The settlement policy, a disgusting policy, his cabinet, awful. But Hamas has got to be destroyed. They are keeping eight American hostages right now, my friends. Every morning and every night, the United States president should be referring to the eight Americans being held by this terrorist organization as the first Jewish president in America, I will sign documents supporting and recognizing a Palestinian state because we need two states. We need peace and prosperity for the Jewish people in Israel and Palestinian people in Palestine. Under my presidency, we will get it done. Thank you, sir. Same question for you on Israel-Palestine. I agree with everything that Dean said. We need to have an immediate ceasefire. I call for the ceasefire before it even began. We do need a release, full release of those hostages. Remember, some of those hostages are American, by the way. I will find out, is there a way that there is any behavior, any action on the part of the United States that could bring them home? And also, then, as Dean said, we need to get immediately to the architecture for a two-state solution. It is absolutely the only solution. It's very encouraging to hear the two different parties having a little overlap on this issue. On the Republican side of the debates, uh, they move towards China. We're moving on to a topic, governors, that both of you have made central to your campaigns, and that is China. Governor Haley, American farmers were hurt by former President Trump's trade war with China. As a result, his administration paid out $28 billion in subsidies to farmers. You have vowed to be even tougher than Donald Trump on China. If your trade policies also end up hurting America's farmers, are you prepared to 
cut a check just like he did? Well, that's why Trump should be here on this debate stage. He should have to defend it. So first of all, I've said China is our number one national security threat. I fought them every single day at the United Nations. I know what they're capable of. The first thing we have to do is we have to make sure we stop selling them any land and we take back the land they already purchased. We need to go to our universities and we say, you either take Chinese money or you take American money, but the days of taking both are over. We need to stop all of the technologies that are going to China. Biden approved 70% of them. Trump approved even more than that. We have to tell them we're going to end all normal trade relations with them until they stop murdering Americans with fentanyl. And we need to make sure we build up our military. But the biggest thing, I was very attached to China in terms of trade. And the one thing we'll do is we won't wait for the China to pull the rug out from under Iowans. What we'll do is instead we will move that trade to where we have friends. We will go and build partnerships, India, Japan, South Korea, Philippines, Australia, Israel. We will go and move that trade over. Right now, you can ask our farmers. When they go and they buy from China, China orders, cancels the order, then goes and tries to buy it cheap. That's what China does. Our farmers deserve better than that. We will get them trade deals. When I was governor in South Carolina, we sold and we exported everything we were making in South Carolina. When I'm president, we will sell and export everything that's being made in Iowa to those that are our friends, not our enemies. Thank you. Governor DeSantis, your response? The way you deal with China is threefold. One, we need more hard power in the Indo-Pacific. I'm a Navy guy. We need more sea power. We're going to build that up, and we're going to have a strategy to deny their ability to invade Taiwan or to get beyond the first island chain. Uh, on the current course, they're going to take advantage of Biden, and we're going to rue the day when that happens. Second, we got to decouple our economy, particularly things that are nationally uh, significant to our national survival. And you got to be methodical, strategic about it. There's a lot of moving parts there, but we're going to do that. Uh, you know, Nikki Haley's not going to be able to do that because a lot of her supporters make a lot of money in China. And so she's going to talk tough, but she'll cave on that. And then what I will tell you is we need to focus on what we're going to do to become less dependent on China. And we need to make sure that we look at it through a national security lens. When we had COVID, everybody told you to wear a mask. It was made in China. They told you to take a COVID test. You turned it over. It was made in China. If you go down the drugstore aisle, all those medicines are made in China. We need to make sure we're getting medicines made here or we need to get it from our friends so that we're not in any way threatened. Here's the thing, though. She's backed by companies like BlackRock. She's backed by uh, major companies on Wall Street. They make a lot of money in China. There's a reason why you're in the mess you are in terms of trying to deal with the inflation and everything uh, because the elites in this country have sold out the middle of the country for China. She is part of that now, and she's not going to stand Governor up for DeSantis, you. Governor DeSantis, I want to ask about something that you mentioned you've been talking a lot about on the campaign trail, which is decoupling the U.S. economy with China's. China is a top supplier of goods to the United States. The U.S. sells more than $150 billion of goods to China every year. Is it really possible to sever economic ties without inflicting major pain on American business and American consumers? Sure it is, and it's something that you got to be strategic, you got to be methodical about. You got to focus on the things that are of national significance. For example, I don't think it's it's good idea that the pharmaceuticals come from there. Things for our military weaponry, all these important things that if we got into a worldwide conflict, what we're going to ask China, who may be on the other side of that, uh, to continue doing that. So you got to be smart about it. You got to recognize that you're going to have to do some incentives here in this country, tax incentives, regulatory incentives. 
but I want to make things here again. You know, I look around uh, the country, there's parts of Iowa that have been hollowed out, particularly in the eastern part. And I've talked to folks and seen what that did for the community. We were sold a bill of goods by a lot of elites in this country that somehow putting China in the WTO and granting a most favored nation status was going to lead to our manufacturing exporting a bunch of stuff there. Instead, they gobbled up so much more manufacturing. I don't think you can be a first-rate power unless you have a very strong industrial base. So we're going to do that here. We're going to work on workforce education. You know, not everyone needs to do a four-year brick and ivy university. Uh, that's not the best way or only way for people to succeed. We're going to do skilled trades. We're going to do vocational. We've done that in Florida. It's going to be a really, really big thing. But I just think the middle of the country has to have those good paying jobs. Uh, and we can't put the interests of some of the people on Wall Street over the interests of Americans on Main Back in New Hampshire, the Democratic candidates were asked what their top priorities would be in their burgeoning administrations. It goes back to you. Yesterday, a Biden campaign official indicated that if he wins the second term, top priority will be abortion. What's your top priority if you win? My top priority... I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Let me start by saying I'm 150% pro-choice. I believe in freedom. I believe in liberty. I believe government should have nothing to do with what a woman does with her body, particularly men. Period. With that said, with that said, it is a very important issue. And by the way, Democrats should have codified reproductive rights into law when we had the chance in past years. That's the beginning. Under my presidency, that will be done. But economic despair. Costs are out of control. People cannot afford their lives. 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. 40% cannot afford a $400 emergency. That is why Joe Biden is losing and will lose to Donald Trump. He is not listening to what is going on in America. It's not about GDP growth. Most of that accrues to the... 1% of Americans who have 32% of the wealth. People cannot afford their lives. I want every one of you in this room to live the American dream, and that's why under my administration, that is job one, two, and three. Thank you, same question for you, ma'am. Sorry, we're going back and forth. We were talking about abortion was your original Talking question. about abortion, but that's, uh, Joe Biden said that was gonna be his top priority, his campaign official. What will your top priority be? My top priority, the first thing I will do is to cancel the Willow Project. The next thing I will do is to cancel every contract that the U.S. government has uh, with, uh, with union-busting companies. Next thing I will do is I will audit every cent of the Pentagon, and I assume that they will, uh, that they will lose it again, that they will fail in that audit. Next thing I will do is I will call together the nation's greatest experts on early childhood. I want to establish a Department of Children and Youth. The 90% the of a child's brain is developed in the first five years. If we want this country to be thriving in 20 years, we need to give a lot more attention to 10-year-olds today. I will also, during that beginning phase of my presidency, I will be establishing a Department of Peace. We need to be as sophisticated and as organized in the ways we wage peace to prevent war as we are sophisticated and organized in the ways of waging war when we feel we must. We will have a peace academy as well as a military academy. We will have an army of peace builders as well as an army of, of military personnel so that both cities in, uh, cities in America as well as cities where we have influence around the world, we will help to wage peace and declare peace and save human civilization for future generations. Quick follow-up, I gotta know, what does a peace academy look like? <clears throat> well, peace building actually is a real thing. There are four factors which, when present, statistically indicate there will be a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence. None of these will surprise you. Number one, greater economic opportunities for women. Number two, greater educational opportunities for children. 
Number three, a reduction of violence against women. And number four, a reduction in unnecessary human despair. When those, when those elements are present, what you have is for people who are thriving. When people are thriving, there is greater peace. Large groups of desperate people are a national security risk. They form a petri dish out of which all manner of personal and societal dysfunction arises almost inevitably, including vulnerability to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. Thank you. I'll keep you about 30 seconds. Yeah, just 30 seconds. And I admire that, and investing in peace, because Americans and the world are sick of war. We all know that. When I'm president, I'm going to do something quite different. I'm going to have a team of rivals in the White House, just like Abraham Lincoln did. I will have a bipartisan cabinet so that every American knows that their voice is heard in the White House. Probably equally important to all of you in this room, I will have the, world, the country's first youth cabinet, a college or high school student from every one of our 50 states who meet on a quarterly basis with me as president to share your perspectives on AI, social media regulation, climate change, gun violence prevention. You've got better ideas than the lobbyists from whom I don't take any money, by the way. So come visit me in Washington. Well, Dean made it quite clear where he stands on the abortion issue. Now let's see what the GOP candidates have to say about it. I want to turn now to the topic of abortion, which of course has been hotly debated in this Republican primary campaign. Governor Haley, last week, Governor DeSantis said that former President Trump is not pro-life. Do you agree? I mean, look, I think that he did some pro-life um, things when he was president. You'd have to ask him. That's why he should be on this debate stage. Don't ask me what President Trump thinks. You need to have him on this debate stage and ask him for yourself. Governor DeSantis? Well, look, I think that, that we've, uh, we've stood very strongly for a culture of life. Uh, Governor Reynolds is here. She has stood strongly for a culture of life and a natural life protection. Uh, we've done it in the state of Florida. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has attacked that. Uh, what they did under Governor Reynolds here in Iowa, he said that that's a, quote, terrible, terrible thing. Uh, I don't know how you square that. He was at the March for Life when he was president his last year, and he said that, that life's a gift from God, that the unborn are made in the image of God, and that you needed to have protections uh, for, for, those, for that human life. And now saying it's a terrible, terrible thing, he's given a gift to the left to weaponize that against pro-lifers, and that's wrong. But here's the thing. Republicans need to do a better job of, of lifting up folks um, who are having children. It's very difficult to raise kids in this environment. You need to help with medical care. You need to help with affordability, and we need to help with education choice. You've got to be pro-life for the whole life, and you've got to have some compassion for what is going on in this Thank country. You, Governor. Governor. Thank you, Governor. Oh, I'm Governor, yesterday in Iowa, you criticized Governor Haley on this issue of abortion. You said she's, quote, indulged in left-wing tropes and chastised pro-lifers. Do you believe Governor Haley is sufficiently pro-life? I, I think she's been confused on the issue. I think she's trying to speak to different groups with different things. But when she says things like pro-lifers need to stop talking about uh, throwing women in jail, that's a trope. No one I've ever met thinks that that's something that's appropriate. Uh, these women are in vulnerable situations. They don't get any help a lot of times from, from these fathers who you know, don't want to be there supportive. A lot of times they don't have resources themselves. So it's a very difficult situation. Uh, and we've got to have compassion for those situations. But I think when she starts bringing that in, that's using the language of the left uh, to try to attack pro-lifers. So I think that that, that is wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, I do agree with her on this. Donald Trump should be on this stage. He owes it to you here in Iowa uh, to explain this change he's had and his positioning, 
to explain why he has a tough time saying whether a man can become a woman or not, uh, to explain why he wants to build a billion-dollar-plus big, beautiful new FBI building right in the heart of the swamp in Washington, D.C. Uh, he needs to explain why he didn't build the wall uh, and why he added $7.8 trillion to the debt. Every candidate needs to earn your vote. Nobody's entitled to your vote. And he comes in here every now and then, he does his spiel, and then he leaves. I've shown up to all 99 counties because it's important. You're a servant of the people. You are not a ruler over the people. And that's the type of president that I will be for. the criticism from Ron about me for being um, pro-life, but I'm not surprised. It's something that he does all day, every day. I'm unapologetically pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells me to be, but because my husband is adopted. And I've got my two sweet children sitting in front of me, and I had trouble having both of them. These fellas don't know how to talk about abortion. I have said over and over again, the Democrats put fear in women on abortion, and Republicans have used judgment. This is too personal of an issue to put fear or judgment. Our goal should be how do we save as many babies as possible and support as many moms as possible. That's what we're going to focus on doing. We're not going to demonize this issue anymore. We're not going to play politics with this issue anymore. We're going to treat it like the respectful issue that it is. And the tropes that you want to talk about, you keep saying, where is anybody talking about putting a woman in jail or giving her the death penalty? South Carolina. There is legislation right now that would put a woman in jail if she got an abortion. Thank you, Governor. That's why I say Thank that. You, and then we'll go on to their stances on healthcare in general and mental health specifically. I'll start this with healthcare. Neither of you has released a detailed healthcare plan, so we want to give some the voters here some insight into specifics of what you might do as president. Governor Haley, as governor of South Carolina, you chose not to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. Forty states, including this one where we are in Iowa, did expand Medicaid, covering more than 18 million Americans. As president, would you allow those states to keep their expansions in place? Well, the first thing is we have to look at the fact that how can we be the best country in the world with the most expensive health care in the world? And so the way we're going to deal with it is we're going to open it all up from the hospitals to the insurance companies to the doctor's offices to the pharmaceuticals to the PBMs. Make them have to show us everything. Because right now, I can tell you, we take care of my parents. They're 87 and 90. My dad is in the hospital right now. When my mom was in the hospital, a nurse came up to her to give her a couple of Tylenol. And she said, I don't need them. And she said, honey, you might as well take them because you're going to pay for them anyway. When we got the bill from the hospital, no one talked to us about that. Right now, you have insurance companies and hospitals deciding what it is for us. We're going to take the patient out of the back seat and put them in the driver's seat. We're going to make sure that just like when you get your car fixed and you go and they say, we can give you a temporary fix and it'll cost this much money, or we can give you a permanent fix and it's going to cost that much money. We're going to go and make it transparent so that we can see everything so that they have to show us their warts. The second thing is we're going to pass tort reform around this country. I did that in South Carolina. Doctors don't give you those 10 tests because they want to. It's for the 90% chance they'll get sued. And then we're going to go and eliminate certificate of need in this country. I did that in South Carolina as well. That basically says if you have a hospital here, you can't have another hospital for X number of miles. They do the same thing for surgical centers, for nursing homes. We're going to put competition back in health care so that health care is fighting for the patient. That way services go Thank up you. and costs go down. Governor Haley, just a 15-second point of clarification. 
Would you allow the states that accepted Medicaid expansion to keep that? So the problem with Medicaid is it needs to be sent down as block grants. Governors can best decide how to do that, whether they need to use it towards mental health, whether they need to use it towards support services. Right now, I would send all of that down to the states. The problem is they're only sending a small portion of it. They need to send more of that so Thank the you, states Governor can Haley. better take care of it. Governor DeSantis, your response on whether you would allow Iowa and the other 39 states who accepted Medicaid expansion to keep it? Well, I've spoken with a lot of folks here in Iowa, and, and we need health care that's accessible, uh, that's affordable, and that's accountable, and particularly an emphasis on mental health. In every corner of this state, everywhere I've traveled in the campaign, uh, people are really concerned about mental health with the kids in schools, uh, people that are coming out of service to our country with veterans. We're going to put a big emphasis on mental health. I've actually delivered on some of these things in Florida. Uh, we got accountability for the pharmacy benefit middlemen that are causing your drug prices to go up. So we have transparency and consumers pay less. And I just beat the federal government uh, to allow the state of Florida to buy prescription drugs from Canada, which is 25 cents on the dollar what our prescription drugs cost. I want seniors to be able to do. And then finally, uh, we need to upend this COVID and medical authoritarian regime that we saw going around this country during COVID. It's wrong to force vaxes uh, like the COVID shot and say people are going to lose their jobs. That is not going to ever happen on my watch. Trust Governor me. DeSantis, the same. I, I, think, I think what you do is you block grant the program and then let states run uh, the way they see fit to do. But I can tell you this, expanding Medicaid leads to less private coverage. It doesn't necessarily increase access to quality care. I want to actually people get good health care. It's not just about a bit sheet of paper if you don't get any good doctors Thank that you, gives Governor. you entitled for that. Governor DeSantis mentioned mental health. Let's talk about that. There is a mental health crisis in this country. An estimated 58 million Americans suffer from some type of mental illness. Governor Haley, you say the mental health crisis is a, quote, cancer that no one has dealt with. What do you think is causing the crisis and what would you do to fix it? Well, I think we saw it exacerbated by COVID. I mean, with the school lockdowns and everything else, we see young people now with more anxiety, stress, and depression than ever before. One in three people right now suffer from mental health issues. But if treated, they can live a perfectly normal life. The problem is we don't have enough mental health therapists. We don't have enough mental health treatment centers. We don't have enough addiction centers. And if you happen to be lucky enough to get one of those three, insurance doesn't cover it. We have got to start dealing with this because it's become a huge issue. And that's why we need to have more telehealth so that people can get the mental health care they need right when they need it. We need to have mental health counselors in schools so they can identify when a child has a problem that they can get the help that they need. But right now, we've got to get access to care. And that's, again, why I want to move those federal programs down to the state level, because states know they need more mental health support. They're not getting the dollars to do it. We don't need D.C. bureaucrats handling that. We need this on the ground so that we can get the mental health centers, get the therapists, and get the help that people need so that they can be healthy again. Governor... Governor DeSantis, you said right here in Iowa this summer that closing mental health institutions, a policy supported by Ronald Reagan, was a mistake. As president, would you restore federal funding to those mental health institutions? Yes, we need more people in institutionalized settings, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, uh, Governor Haley mentioned, I think correctly, 
the devastating mental health consequences for these school closures, a lot of things that happened during COVID. I never recalled seeing her out there fighting the fight. I was on the front lines on that. Governor Kim Reynolds was on the front lines on that. We fought back against the biomedical state. We were attacked by the media. We were attacked by the pharmaceutical companies. We were attacked by the left, attacked by Fauci. We stood and we helped people. And Iowa and Florida had the best schools opening in the entire pandemic because we led. That's what you want to do. Now, in terms of mental health, I've run into veterans here uh, in Iowa, and I think we have a significant problem with veterans, uh, particularly the post 9-11 veterans. And we know the stats on suicide. Um, it's really, really sad. And as a fellow veteran, on, as president, I have to put that issue on the front burner. We can't keep turning a blind eye to what's happening to our vets. It's not going to be done just through the VA, and it can't be done just by pumping people with pharmaceuticals. If a veteran has post-traumatic stress, you need more than just that. So we're going to use the VA to link veterans with resources that are throughout our country. For example, in Florida, uh, we have a, a, an organization that trains service dogs to be able to be paired with veterans with post-traumatic stress. They understand the symptoms. They mitigate it. And you know what? The suicide rate is close to zero as a result of that. We got to think bigger than these bureaucracies, and we've got to be there for our vets and their mental health. And back to the Granite State to hear the Democrats' views on health care as well. For a number of years now, polls indicate the number one health, public health, and safety issue Granite Staters are facing is the crisis of addiction. Certainly, New Hampshire's not alone. Fentanyl, though, surpassing numbers of those lost in Vietnam overall. It's a real problem. Again, this plays into you. Do you think we're nearing a point where public health emergency needs to be declared along the lines of the COVID-19 pandemic? Whether we declare it or not, drug addiction is a public health emergency, and that is the way we need to treat it. We need to stop treating drug addiction as a criminal issue. We need to treat it as a health issue. Most addicts want to get sober. We have spent a trillion dollars since 1971, the beginning of the drug war, which was bogus to begin with, and Richard Nixon knew that. It has not in any way solved the problem. It has exacerbated it. Among other things, 46% of our federal prisoners are nonviolent drug offenders. They should be home with their children. For the $100 billion that we spend now on the drug war, we can have a world-class network of recovery options. Many presidents have a drug czar. I want to have a recovery czar. I want to bring recovery, getting people back their lives on the issue of addiction as on everything else in order that we can begin again. That will, by the way, release the energy, the resources, and the bandwidth that we need to go after the one that's the real problem, and that is fentanyl. Thank you, ma'am. Of course we have an addiction problem in this country because we have economic despair, we have hopelessness, we have anger, disenfranchisement, oppression. It's part of the human condition and prohibition usually never works. We're also a country that spends a trillion dollars a year back again to the military budget. And yet we're suffering the loss of 100,000 Americans to addiction overdoses, 50,000 to gun violence. And yet we're dedicating all this money overseas to protecting our country. Why don't we start protecting ourselves? A mental and emotional health care system. A system of not just treatment, as Marianne said, but recovery. We underinvest. And then we don't find paths to success afterwards. This is about being a compassionate country, a country that cares, but most importantly, a country that solves problems. And as a member of Congress for three terms, let me tell you, the dysfunction is obscene all predicated on the fact that the entire culture is predicated on returning to your seat in Congress, not solving problems. There's no reward for it. That's the only reason I've torpedoed my career to step out of that nonsense 
lead the country as its executive, and tell you the truth, saying the quiet part out loud. Something the Republican debate touched on, but the Democrats didn't really go into, was the issue of crime in America. Thank you. I want to turn to the issue of crime. The majority of Americans describe crime in the U.S. as either extremely or very serious. Recent data show crime rates falling, but some violent crime rates do remain high. Governor Haley, former President Trump, suggested that he might try to stop violent crime by deploying U.S. troops to Democratic-run states and cities, something he could potentially do under the Insurrection Act. Is that something that you would do as president? What I would do is, first of all, defund sanctuary cities. It's hugely important that we do that. That's where we're seeing a lot of crime. But the second thing is, our law enforcement is demoralized right now. Because if they go and they arrest someone for having a stolen gun, it's demoralizing when they go through all that effort, put their lives at risk, and then you turn around and let that criminal go the very next day. Prosecutors need to prosecute according to the law, and we've got to start holding them accountable. When we bring law and order back to our cities, then that's when they'll be safe. You don't do it by defunding the police, and you don't do it by just praising the police. You do it by having their backs, making sure we pass the first body camera bill in the country in South Carolina to make sure that law enforcement felt like they could do their job without anyone without feeling threatened about them doing their job. But we have to have prosecutors prosecuting. We have to defund sanctuary cities. We have to get these these stolen guns and drugs off the street. And the only way we can do that is when we empower law enforcement. Governor I just think, I mean, that, that quote from the president, former President Trump is a little bit rich because he was president during the worst rioting in the modern history of this country, the BLM riots in the summer of 2020. When I saw that happening in Minneapolis, in Florida, I called out the National Guard. We had state law enforcement deployed. We said, you're not burning down our cities in this state. And you know what? It didn't happen. He sat in the White House and tweeted law and order, but he did nothing to ensure law and order. As your president, I will never let our cities burn. You have every right to stop this runaway rioting. As president, in fact, you have a duty. Now... On the Democratic side, the moderator challenged the candidates to describe why they were the best choice to beat Biden and succeed in the general. Marianne Williamson got her full answer in, but there was a problem with the stream and Dean Phillips got cut off. Ma'am, we'll start with you. Why are you the person that can beat Joe Biden and then win the presidency? We are not going to win the presidency by warning people about Donald Trump. People who like Donald Trump, like Donald Trump, they're going to vote for Donald Trump. The way we're going to win in 2024, first of all, let me tell you what the danger is for Democrats. The danger for Democrats is not people voting for Donald Trump. We could indict him 91 more times, they're going to vote for Donald Trump. The danger is people staying home. The danger is staying, people staying home if the Democratic Party does not become once again unequivocal advocates for the working people of the United States. I'm the one because I'm going to offer people a better life, an economic U-turn, a new beginning, a way to actually make your life better. Someone who's, you know, Congress has been the problem. They would say that only those who know how to be part of that system that drove us into this ditch should possibly be considered qualified to lead us out of this ditch. But the problem is not that we don't have enough political car mechanics in Washington. The problem is that we're on the wrong road. I'm the, I'm the one to offer to people what I have done for the last 40 years. I have worked with people in times of crisis and despair. And the American people are in a time of constant crisis today and constant despair. I'm, I know about helping people endure time of crisis 
and transform a time of crisis by saying the truth. The truth is that short-term profit maximization for huge corporations is now the bottom line. It now supersedes humanitarian values. It supersedes the safety, the health, and the well-being of the American people. In me, you'd have a president who says it like it is, lays it down like it is, and does something about it, and it's not just talk. Go, go do it. Hold it. Uh, I appreciate it. Try to keep it around a minute. Take as much time as you'd like on this, sir. I, I believe I'm the type of president our country needs. And that is because I am dedicated to repairing this country, to celebrating people of all races, religions, politics, geographies. I'm disgusted by both parties having divided this nation. Angertainment would have us actually believe we're more divided than we really are. There's a reason I'm the second most bipartisan member out of 585 elected officials in Washington and our governors. I care deeply. I will wake up every single morning trying to repair our country. I also have unusual experience. I built companies. I've been working in the private sector almost my whole life. I was the board chair of a health system. I was a regent at a university. I chaired the board of Philanthropic Foundation, so I know the nonprofit world. And now I'm a third-term member of Congress. I have seen everything, and I see why things are not working in Washington. Why did Donald Trump win? A lot of people like the fact he was a businessman, but he gave business people like me a bad name. I've never declared bankruptcy. I've never had my philanthropy shut down because of unethical behavior in New York. I've not been uh, indicted four times. My goodness, everybody. I can bring this country together. I have business experience. I attract independence. I flipped a Democrat. I flipped a district that had been red for 60 years. 60 years. Once the stream was restored, he seemed to be in the middle of discussing climate-related topics, so we'll let him wrap up on that and roll right into the Republican debate where they also talked about these issues. All of you with the cost of that transition. And look, we did not leave the Stone Age because we ran out of rocks. We came up with better ways to do things, and we know what those things are. Wind. Wind is the least expensive form of electricity generation right now in the United States. Why? Because of federal investments and subsidies to create the technology. We know how to do it, but we should be a common sense country that migrates our way there so you are not burdened with costs. That's why I favor carbon fee and dividend. We put a price on carbon, we give an incentive to move to fossil fuel free economies, and we return the proceeds to the people who are economically impacted by it. But we operate on incentives and disincentives and this government has done a terrible job, terrible job to migrate to the decency and the fossil fuel free economy that we need. Turning to the topic of climate, 2023 was the hottest year ever recorded on earth and Americans are already feeling the impact just yesterday the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reported that the U.S. experienced 28 weather and climate-related disasters that cost at least $1 billion last year, another record. Governor DeSantis here in Florida, I'm sorry, Governor DeSantis here in Iowa, massive flooding has left farmers underwater. Uh, in Florida, rising seas threaten coastal cities. You have taken action in your home state to mitigate the problems of rising seas, but as president, would you do anything to deal with the underlying cause, which scientists agree requires cutting carbon emissions? So on day one as president, we take Biden's Green New Deal, we tear it up and we throw it in the trash can. It is bad for this country. We have to have reliable energy. And here's the thing, you know, they, they talk about, Joe Biden has said that, that global warming is worse than a nuclear war. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, gee, John Kerry hasn't given up his private jet Obama hasn't given up his Martha's Vineyard seaside mansion. 
I haven't seen Biden do anything to hold China accountable except making sure that Hunter gets his money. So these guys talk out of one side of their mouth and then they behave in another way. And I think that's wrong. But I also think that those policies would devastate communities, particularly here uh, in Iowa. I mean, for example, he wants to mandate electric vehicles. Uh, that's going to be more costly. I think the car companies would go bankrupt, but it's going to hurt liquid fuels, which is very, very important. You're going to end up having rolling blackouts if they kneecap reliable energy production in this country. Florida's had a massive decline in emissions. It wasn't because of a single mandate. Uh, it was because of innovation, because a lot of natural gas has replaced coal. We do have market-based solar, and it's, it's a complement but we cannot walk away from reliable energy. And I think about, here's what the left wants to do. Uh, they want to take away your freedom, and they want you to pay more for everything. We need you to pay less for energy, and we need to make sure people can innovate. Uh, we cannot have these mandates, and they'll be gone the day I'm president. So, Governor, just a point of clarification, 15 seconds. Uh, recent research at the University of Iowa ties these floods in Iowa to the rise in greenhouse gases. And here's the ask, thing, Jay, Let me, just ask, let me just ask the question. As president, would you do anything to deal with this underlying cause? Innovate. And here's the thing. China is building two coal plants a week. You can do everything Biden wants to do, and you're going to have way more of what China's increasing it. So why would we be cutting off our nose to spite our face? China is the problem here, and so hold them accountable. Thank but you, Governor. Don't hold the American people. Thank you, Governor. Governor Haley, as president, would you do anything to deal with the underlying cause of, of the floods and other climate disasters, which scientists agree requiring requires cutting carbon emissions? I mean, first of all, regardless of what party, everybody wants to have clean air, clean water. They want a world that they can pass on to their kids that's going to be healthy and all of that. But it's how do we do that? I think the first thing we have to understand is, you don't deal in extremes. When I was at the United Nations, the reason I took us out of the Paris Climate Agreement was because President Obama had put all these mandates down on our businesses, but they didn't do anything to hold China and India to account. Those are the two countries we have to really go to if we care about the environment, that we go and make them be held accountable. The second thing is we'll roll back all of Biden's green subsidies because they're misplaced. Rather than putting anything towards innovation on what we can do on nuclear fusion and other things that reduce emissions, which there are things out there, to go and have everybody have to drive an electric car by 2035, that's not even smart. One, because, which, by the way, um, Ron took Biden's stimulus money and did charging stations all throughout Florida. I wouldn't have taken the stimulus money. But what that does is, basically, we don't have the infrastructure. And I'm not just talking about charging stations. Electric vehicles are heavy. Our roads and bridges wouldn't be able to handle that if we did that because they're heavy in weight. And so we have to be smart about the way we do that, not to mention 70% of the batteries in electric cars are made in China. So Biden gave this massive windfall, windfall to our number one national security threat. If we're going to do it, innovate it, transition, and do it the right way, Thank not you. in extremes. Thank you. Both debates had some content related to education in America. First, the Republicans discussed primary schooling, with the Democrats focused more on college level and student debt. Governor Haley, Governor Haley, according to the U.S. Department of Education, in 2017, the year you left office, South Carolina schools ranked in the bottom 10 nationwide in both reading and math scores. Given that, why should voters concerned about K-12 education 
support you rather than other Republicans? Because I think what we did was we knew that there was an issue. We knew in South Carolina if a child couldn't read by third grade, they were four times less likely to graduate high school. So what we did is we started holding kids back instead of pushing them forward. We brought in their parents. We did reading remediation, and we set them up for success. We've got to do that all over our country. We only had 31% of eighth graders in our country are proficient in reading. 27% of eighth graders are proficient Mass. If we don't do something, we're going to be in a world of hurt 10 years from now. That's why I want to take as many federal programs from D.C. as we can and send them down to the state level. Think education. We can move a lot of K-12 programs down to the state level, reduce the strings that are attached, and that way states can handle it themselves. People in Iowa know best what types of education they need. Secondly, parents should decide what types of education their children get, what mode of education. And we should have complete transparency in the classroom. No parent should ever wonder what's being said or taught to their child in the classroom. That's why we'll have all of the curriculums online for every parent to see. And we need to start putting vocational classes back in our high schools. Let's teach our kids how to do things. We did that in South Carolina. We had apprenticeships. We taught our kids how to build the things we're making. When we start putting education back in the states and away from D.C., that's when we'll start to see that we're going back to the basics. We're doing what parents want, and we're doing what the industry in that you, state needs. Well, Thank you, Governor. Governor DeSantis, I'm coming to you right now. Governor DeSantis, you have supported limits on what subjects can be taught and how, including American history in Florida schools. You have also made it easier to remove books from public school libraries. You say you want to, quote, make America Florida do you want to implement those Florida school policies nationwide? Now, in terms of what we've done, we believe in empowering parents, and there are certain standards about what's age and developmentally appropriate. It's wrong to have pornographic materials in fourth or fifth grade. And you know what's happened? They'll go to school board meetings all around the country, they'll start reading it, and they say, oh, no, no, it's too graphic. You can't read it here. You can't put it on the 6 o'clock news. Well, if you can't, if it's not appropriate in a school board meeting and you can't put it on the 6 o'clock news, why are you jamming it down the throats of a fourth grader? So, Governor, just a point of clarification. Do you want to implement Florida's education policies nationwide? It depends on the policy. School choice, universal, yes. I don't want a nationalized curriculum. I think that that's a bottom-up thing. I want to get rid of the Federal Department of Education, get that weight off the backs of the state and local governments. But we are going to do nationwide scholarships through the tax uh, you, tax credits, and that's going to Thank bail you, out a lot of poor Thank kids you. throughout this country. Governor Haley? You know, we, I have fought for school choice in my entire career because I think parents know their children best. And I think we should always do that. That's why we passed charter school legislation in our state. That's why we empowered homeschoolers in our state. That's why we changed the funding formula so we lifted up challenged areas without bringing down the wealthy areas. We wanted school choice. I had a Republican legislature that wouldn't do it. But we pushed hard to get that done. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it across the country, but what we have to do is we have to make it state-centric. We've got to get these programs down to the state level. We've got to let the focus be on teachers. Teachers right now have to be the guidance counselors, the pastors, the nurses, and everything in between. And, oh, by the way, they have to teach to a test. That's not what teachers want. Teachers want to do what they were taught to do, and that means math, science, reading, history, English, arts. That's it. Schools can't be all things to all kids. They need to let the parents parent. They need to let teachers teach, and we need to go back to the basics in education so we get Thank our kids you. ready. Uh, so my question is, uh, how 
as president, how would you address this rising cost and how will you fund that initiative? So Libya, first and foremost, we should be a nation that ensures that young people who have an interest in higher education to pursue their American dream can do so without being burdened by debt. $1.7 trillion, $90 billion a year in interest, it is obscene. If we are a country of freedom and liberty and capitalism, we should be investing in education, not tormenting and burdening people with extraordinary amounts of debt. Near term, I'd like to absolve the debt of anybody who has it and is willing to pursue a career in some type of public service by serving our country somehow. I think we should start with that. How to pay for college to make sure no one has to? I would take the top, listen, the top 15 endowments of the top universities in America have $326 billion. What should we do? It's time for an excise tax, the Ivy League excise tax. That alone can help pay for college for everybody because the aggregation of that money is obscene, absurd, and it has got to be shared. I like the idea of that excise tax, but let's look at the larger picture here. We should be setting our young people up to win, not cutting them off at their knees. How predatory is that, that we have turned the desperation of young people to simply self-actualize and better their lives into a profit center? Before the 1970s, there was a tuition-free and near-tuition-free system in this country. It was in Florida, University of Florida, University of Texas, University of California. And then this ugly economic, unholy economic alliance between banks and lending companies and an educational institution and the government in order to create these loans. It is predatory. It is preying on our young people. That's why I will use the Higher Education Act to get rid of them completely. How many of our young people would love nothing more than a $2,500 you know, $2, discretionary expenditure? We have kids who are coming out of college so loaded. And by the way, when I was in, debt is crippling no matter how old you are. But to be in your 20s carrying tens of thousands of dollars of college loan debt, this country should be ashamed of itself. And how do we pay for it? In other countries, what they do is this. You go as high as your achievement level will take you. Then later, when you can, when the government can see on your taxes that you are beginning to make, you know, you're doing fine, and that money can start being paid back to the government without impacting your uh, uh, quality of life, then the government starts paying itself back. This is one of the most egregious transgressions of the U.S. government on parts of the population of the United States. Shame on us for doing this to our young. And now on to another third rail item in American politics, Social Security. Let's move on to uh, Social Security. Let's move on to Social Security. According to the Social Security Administration, Social Security will be unable to pay full benefits in a decade if no action is taken. Governor DeSantis, you have said that you're not going to, quote, mess with Social Security, unquote. Does that mean you have committed to never raising the retirement age and never cutting benefits? So all seniors out there, promise has been made to you You've paid into this. Every single paycheck that you've had your entire life, they've taken money out of. Uh, and that promise needs to be fulfilled. So that will happen when I'm president. Of course, I have a lot of seniors in Florida that, that depend on Social Security. I know many of them. Uh, and I think back to my own grandmother who was uh, lived till 91. Social Security was her sole source of income. So promise made, promise kept. You know, on the retirement age, you know, it used to be people would say, well, uh, life expectancy is going up. Shouldn't it mirror that? Well, the problem now in the last five years is life expectancy is going down. So I don't see how you can raise the retirement age when our life expectancy is collapsing in this country. That's a huge problem in and of itself. 
Uh, I'll work with both sides of the aisle. Uh, we'll work on something for the long-term strengthening, but I am not going to mess with seniors' benefits. In this high inflation environment, groceries are going through the roof, rent is going through the roof, all these staples, and you get a cost of living adjustment, but that's not enough to cover the costs that have been increased. So seniors are really strapped, particularly those that are on fixed income, uh, and they have to know uh, that we're going to deliver when it comes to their Social Security check. Now, we're going to get inflation down. We're going to get energy costs down. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to help seniors, uh, but I think seniors should know promise made will be a promise kept. So just a point of clarification, 15 seconds. Removing current seniors from the equation you're not saying that you're committing to never raising the retirement age or cutting benefits. I would never raise the retirement age in, in, in the face of, of declining life expectancy. I mean, I think that that would be really bad. I mean, just think about it. That, that hurts blue-collar folks. You get taxed your entire life, life expectancy's down. You may not even be recouping very many benefits. And so uh, life you, expectancy is declining. You, That's a big Governor problem. Haley. Three years in a row, he voted to raise life expectancy to 70 years old, three years in a row. So now suddenly he's gonna tell you because he's running for president, he's not gonna do it, you can't trust him. What I'll tell you, social security is gonna go bankrupt in 10 years. Medicare is gonna go bankrupt in eight. He talks about taking care of seniors right now, it's Florida it has, is the inflation hotspot. It's the highest cost of living of any state in the country. Seniors are having That's to leave true. because they can't afford it. What I'll tell you we have to do is, we have to keep our promises to seniors, but we also can't put our head in the sand. For those like Ron saying they're not gonna touch social security, that means they're gonna leave after four or eight years and leave it bankrupt? No, what we do is we go to those in their 20s and say we're gonna change the retirement age to reflect life expectancy. Instead of cost of living increases, we do increases based on inflation. We limit benefits on the wealthy you, and we expand Medicare Advantage plans, which seniors love. You, That's Governor. how we'll deal with so, Governor, sure they Governor DeSantis. Governor Haley, you wanna raise the retirement age for younger Americans, but you have not said what that age should be. Should voters in their 20s plan on working until they're 70? Yes, we're going to take on, we're going to be responsible with it, and we're going to go to those in our 20s. When I said the retirement age was too low, I said it's too low if we're going to look at those in their 20s. We have to go and start looking at what we can do to get out of this. We want to make sure that everybody who was promised gets it, but we also want to make sure our kids have something when they get it too. So the way we do that is exactly how I laid it out. Then we'll know what we're looking at, and then we can start focusing. The other thing is we need to start cutting spending in D.C. We have to go back to pre-COVID levels. That's why I'll veto any spending bill that doesn't take us back to pre-COVID levels. That will save us trillions. We've got to go into every agency, replace the, every, the head of every agency, and send people into every agency. I did that as governor. Pull down old regs, pull down old programs, get rid of any problem children, and clean those agencies out and get them mission focused. There is a lot of waste in D.C. You need an accountant to go in there and clean it up, but we're not going to take away from anyone else. And he's yet to answer the fact that he voted three times to raise the retirement. So just a clarification, uh, Governor Haley. Uh, in 15 seconds, should voters in their 20s plan on having to work until they're 70? They should plan on their retirement age being increased, yes. We're going to change it to reflect more of what uh, life expectancy should be. Well, one of the things that I think we disagree on, too, is uh, Governor Haley has said Social Security is an entitlement. But, you know, it's not an entitlement. You're paying into it. It's not a welfare program. You're being taxed for this your whole life. And so to expect to have benefits on the back end, you know, I don't think that that's too much. The other thing I'd point out is, 
Um, Social Security for decades ran massive surpluses. What happened to those surpluses? The Congress spent the surpluses. Yes, when you they have the a debt. big problem with that. So number one, we need term limits for members of Congress. Number two, we need a balanced budget amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Number three, we need to give the president a line item veto. And number four, when you see all these congressmen making a killing in the stock market, like Nancy Pelosi, she could run a very lucrative hedge fund. We need a 28th amendment to the Constitution that says very simply, Congress shall make no law respecting the citizens of the United States that does not also apply to members of Congress themselves. If lawmakers don't take action to protect and save Social Security over the next 10 years, uh, Social Security could be cut by 20%, an average of $4,000 a year. This is a program that workers rely on when they retire or become disabled. It's also important to families uh, when a worker passes away. As president, what we do to protect Social Security for Americans 50 plus, their children, their grandchildren, and so on. We should uh, lift the cap to $250,000. Then also, remember, our seniors, half of our seniors are living on less than $25,000 a year. For everyone who is over 65 and older, there should be, if your uh, um, Social Security does not get to the level of $1,200, you will be at the level of $1,200. This is particularly an issue for older women, because many women didn't pay into Social Security. Their work was unearned, uh, unpaid labor. It was raising children. It was taking care of homes. So every senior should receive that $1,200. And that is how we will not only save Social Security, but it's also how we will save the, uh, the dignity and the lives and the well-being of our elders. Thank you very much. Same question for you, sir. Well, Social Security is the most successful anti-poverty program in human history, mm -hmm. and it is not one that we can let uh, go under. We might uh, make sure that it's solvent and that, as you just said, Josh, it will be reducing benefits by 25% in the 2030s, coming up soon, if we don't do something, because we've had such demographic shifts in America. How do we solve it? Just like Marianne said, we have a very regressive tax right now in place a cap of about $160,000 a year, meaning if you make $200,000, you're paying a lot less in Social Security percentage than someone making 160. We should move the cap to 250. That will extend the program through the 2040s. And then, as I just said earlier in this uh, debate, I want to establish a mechanism to make Americans philanthropists. There are millions of Americans who have been successful, do not need their Social Security. If they knew they could de dedicate their um, annual uh, Social Security to a pool that would be redistributed to the lowest 10% of recipients, that would make a meaningful difference in the lives of millions of retirees and give them dignity. That should be the promise of America. Line of questioning on the Democratic side regarding the efforts to remove Donald Trump from primary ballots in some states leads nicely into constitutional questions on the Republican side about, you guessed it, our favorite defendant, Donald Trump. A little bit of politics and topical issue in the news. Colorado Supreme Court, I'm sure you both know where I'm going with this. Uh, Maine Secretary of State has ruled that Donald Trump not qualified to be on the state's ballots because they declare he engaged in an insurrection against the United States on January 6th. It's been in the news quite a bit. New Hampshire Secretary of State has said that such an important constitutional decision cannot be made at the state level alone. So in your view, and we'll start with, I think it's your turn, Congressman, who should decide this question and why? The Supreme Court should decide the question. That's why we have a Supreme Court. Americans are losing faith in the Supreme Court, which is one reason I wish we had 18-year term limits there, which is a whole other conversation. Donald Trump is an unmitigated disaster. He's one of the most dangerous people in American history. I was subject to the insurrection that he inspired in the House chamber that day. All of you watched on TV. It was heartbreaking, disgusting, repulsive. With all that said, I'm very concerned. 
because a majority of americans favor him right now as our next president that's the truth and do i think it's appropriate for the legal system to take him off the ballot actually i don't i think he should be facing voters as the judge and jury because if not i'm very concerned about america's future because i think violence will ensue and i think it's better for our country all of you all of us on this stage and elsewhere to mobilize to defeat him that's why i'm running for president because right now Joe Biden is a risk to democracy because he is knowingly going into an election in which his approval numbers and his poll numbers make it almost impossible for him to win. I know Marianne feels the same way. We are the only two in the United States of America on the Democratic side of the aisle to stand up and tell you the truth. He's going to lose. He's going to lose. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Same question to you, ma'am. For the most part, I agree with everything that Dean said. Under normal circumstances, I do think it would be reasonable uh, for the legal uh, system to decide. But uh, I, share, uh, I share Dean's fear about this, his deep concern. And I do think it should be a decision made uh, by the Supreme Court. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate that. So I couldn't help but notice we did coin flip out in the lobby a moment ago. You guys are very respectful of each other. You seem to genuinely like each other. And we don't see that a lot with our politicians, Tell me about particularly it. opponents on stage. How do you get to a point to where you talk some of the extreme winds of your own party who's co-opting a lot of ways? We'll start with you, Marianne Williamson. How do you get them on board with bringing some stability back in the process? I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about the American people. The horse race is not what matters to me. The majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want universal health care. The majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want tuition-free college and tech school. The majority of Americans, Republicans as well as Democrats, including gun owners, want common sense gun safety laws. I'm not concerned about the civility or lack of civility in Congress. I'm concerned about the fact that they do more to serve the short-term profit uh, maximization of their donors than they do to serve the safety, health, and well-being of the American people. I do not expect that every congressman and senator will necessarily like me. And I don't want to bring a bunch of Republicans and fiscal responsibility people into my, into my cabinet so much. They have failed. And what I want to do is to be an advocate for the American people. And some people actually in Congress would not like me. And I would feel about them the same way that Franklin Roosevelt did. He called the people who represent the interests of corporate America over the interests of the people the economic royalists. They came at him, and they would come at me the same way, in Congress and out of Congress. They'd call me a socialist. They'd say everything that they said about him. And what he said was, I welcome their hatred. I'm not going into the presidency to be a people pleaser so that anybody in Congress would necessarily like me or not. They'd respect me. I'd be fair, and I would be fair in negotiations, but I would not be quiet when they were not serving the people. I would go straight with the bully pulpit to the American people, and I would let you know who is obstructing your best interests, who they were donated to Thank by, you. what they were really Thank doing you. in Washington. It would be you and me, their secondary. But I'd be tough. I'm Thank sorry. You. I'm sorry. Take a little extra time, sir. How would you bring it all together? Well, I believe deeply in our Constitution and the way our founders set up this country was we had to debate, deliberate, and then come to conclusions and solve our country's problems. That means we had to work together. George Washington warned us all about factions, about political parties. I told you earlier that is the biggest disaster in our country right now. With all that said, are we going to succeed by fighting each other? No. 
We're going to succeed by fighting for one another, and that is why I am proud to be the second most bipartisan member of Congress. That is why the first bill I had signed into law during the Trump administration was the Paycheck Protection Flexibility Act. I did it with Chip Roy. You all know who he is, the Freedom Caucus member? I'm the second most bipartisan member of Congress. He's probably 433. But I set out to become his friend early on. I got to know him because the Congress does everything to keep us separate. I will invest in working together. I will include Republicans at my table because if we don't, we can never expect them to include us at their table. We have got to change this nonsense. We cannot succeed unless we start respecting one another. That starts in the White House, and that's exactly how I intend to do it as our president. Separate question for each of you on the same topic. Hey, Congressman, how have establishment Democrats treated you in Washington since you announced your campaign for the With extraordinary hypocrisy and meanness and attacks, and it is disgusting. Mm-hmm. And, I agree with you on that. And I think, and I got to tell you all, um, I've learned a lot. And I think we all have to keep open minds and open hearts as we go through life to recognize that we don't know it all. And the party in which I believed and invested, I enabled, I was part of, I was a House Democratic leader elected by my peers just last year to serve as one of the leaders. I went from a darling to a devil. Why? For practicing democracy, my friends, for practicing democracy. I will not have one colleague endorse me, people who really had affection for me and still do. They can't do that because every one of them wants to get reelected and they don't want the Democratic Party to do to them what they're doing to me. Why do you think that Marianne and I are the only ones on the stage right now? Because people who actually aspire to lead the free world were too afraid to be on the stage for what the Democratic Party would do. The pain, it's hard. The pain is hard, but it is nothing like the pain being experienced by so many Americans, and I will persevere, I will take it, and I will take it all the way to the White House. Great. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Please hold your applause. Ms. Williamson, along the same lines, we have to ask you a question. Listen, I mean, you get, obviously the DNC has made their decision in a lot of ways. Uh, you're not being uh, considered by establishment Republicans. This is the first and only debate that you've had. How do you go down there, achieve your agenda, while also breaking up some of the probably hurt feelings of members of your own party? The president does not have a magic wand. The president is not supposed to have a magic wand. As Dean himself pointed out, we have three co-equal branches of government. We've had Republican presidents who overreached and abused presidential power. But in my opinion, we've had some Democratic presidents who haven't used it enough, had been too much about these factions of men that actually, as Dean said, George Washington warned us about. He said political parties, he was afraid they would form factions of men who were more concerned with their party, with their faction, than with their country. And so these are sophisticated people, by the way. And once you become president, they understand that you are president. And they would feel, for me, uh, great respect. They were elected by their constituents. Um, They would feel my respect that they're members of Congress and members of the Senate. Uh, I'm sorry? Probably a little sheepish, too. Uh, I don't know about sheepish, but they would be aware that for the first time in a long time, there was a woman, well, first time there's a woman, but the first time in a long time that there was a president who did not emerge from the political party structure, a president who emerged from the people, and there would be no doubt about it. I'm here to serve. Both of you talk about how important it is to protect the U.S. Constitution. Two years after losing the 2020 election, Donald Trump wrote on social media about his baseless election lies, quote, A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution, unquote. 
On that subject, former Vice President Mike Pence has said that on January 6, 2021, Donald Trump put himself over the Constitution. Governor Haley, is there any meaningful difference in how you and Donald Trump view the Constitution? I mean, look, you take an oath to the Constitution, and I think what you're seeing is Donald Trump basically said that the election was stolen. He went on and on talking about the election being stolen. He said that January 6th was a beautiful day. I think January 6th was a terrible day. And we should never want to see that happen again. And I think we have to always be strong on the fact that, look, we want fair elections. And we saw some discrepancies in those elections in 2020 that should be concerning. That's why I passed voter ID in South Carolina. That's why I think when absentee ballots go out, you should be able to verify signatures. That's why I think ballots need to be counted on election day and you should get results on election day. But those that election, Trump lost it. Biden won that election. And the idea that he's gone and carried this out forever to the point that he's going to continue to say these things to scare the American people are wrong. We've seen a lot of states come together and do more election integrity bills. We need to do more than that. We still have three or four states that I'm worried about that don't have that. But at the end of the day, I will always defend and fight the for the Constitution. That's what we should do as Americans. I think what happened on January 6th was a terrible day, and I think President Trump will have to answer for it. So just a clarification, a clarification, Governor, is there any meaningful difference in how you and Donald Trump view the Constitution? Well, I mean, I think that he says January 6th was a beautiful day. I don't think it was a beautiful day. I think you look at that. He thinks that he could go and bring in... The fact that he wanted to change what the states did, the fact that he wanted to overturn the elections in D.C., those votes happen at the state level. You don't ever allow in D.C. for those votes to be changed at the federal you, level. Governor. States' rights matter. Thank you, Governor. Governor DeSantis, is there any meaningful difference in how you and Donald Trump view the Constitution? My role model for how to do the Constitution is uh, George Washington. He said, the Constitution is the guide that I will never abandon. And I remember when I took an oath to be an officer in the U.S. Navy, uh, you, you, you raise that hand, you put that left hand on the Bible, and it's interesting, the oath doesn't say that you're going to defend the shores of the United States uh, or, or engage in, in military conflict. The oath simply says that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. As President of the United States, you will preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. You can't just terminate the Constitution. I mean, I know he does, you know, word vomit from time to time on social media, but obviously I will uphold the Constitution. But, and I think it's fine to criticize Donald Trump, and I know the media brings this up a lot. Uh, but you know who else deserves to be criticized? The people that violated the Constitution during COVID to lock people out of schools, to destroy businesses, to force masks on people, to try to force vaccines. I'm going to bring a reckoning to all these agencies, the CDC, the NIH, the FDA. They harm people in this country. And when Dr. Fauci said there Thank was you, no learning loss for kids, that's a disgrace. Thank you, Governor. There's a reckoning coming. So let's talk about how you view... Let's talk about how you view the powers of the presidency, because your opponent, Donald Trump, was in court yesterday for a hearing on presidential immunity. And Governor DeSantis, I'm wondering if you agree with the argument that Donald Trump's lawyer made in court that a president should have immunity for any conduct in office, including, as the judge asked, ordering the assassination of a political rival, unless the president gets impeached and convicted by the Senate for the offense first. Well, obviously, that attorney uh, gave the case away on that on that explanation. I think the D.C. Circuit is going to rule against Donald Trump on that issue. I'm not exactly sure what the outer limits are. I don't think it's necessarily been litigated. 
it's not going to be an issue with me because I'm always going to follow the Constitution um, and we're going to we're going to uphold uh, the, the best traditions of the office. And, and I'm going to be a president you can be proud of. Uh, you know, I think it's important that uh, people be able to look to the president and say, hey, you know, that, that's somebody that's, that's worthy of emulating. And so my wife and I, we just view ourselves to try to, to do well for our kids and to make sure they're proud of us and we set a good example. Uh, so, so that's what we would do in that situation. But I think there's a larger issue Republicans have got to think of. Donald Trump's going to lose that appeal. He's going to end up going to trial in front of a stacked left-wing D.C. jury of all Democrats uh, what are the odds that he's going to get through that? And that's even talking about the, 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 the validity of the charges. I don't think he gets through that. And so what are we going to do as Republicans in terms of who we nominate for president? If Trump is the nominee, it's going to be about January 6th, legal issues, criminal trials. The Democrats and the media would love to run with that. Uh, I'm not running for my issues. I'm running for your issues. We need to make this election a referendum on the failures of Joe Biden the failures of the Democratic Party, and how we have the formula to engineer a great comeback for this country. That's what I would like. Thank you, Governor. Governor Haley, Governor Haley, your response? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. Uh, the, the question was, do you agree with the argument Donald Trump's lawyer made in court that a president should have immunity for any conduct, including an ordering the assassination of a political rival, unless that president is impeached and convicted by the Senate for that offense first. No, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, we need to use some common sense here. You can't go and kill a political rival and then claim, you know, immunity from a president. I think we have to start doing things. What I do think we need to look at is what has President Trump done? You look at the last few years, and our country is completely divided. It's divided over extremes. It's divided over hatred. It's divided over the fact that People think that if someone doesn't agree with you that they're bad. And now we have leaders in our country that decide who's good and who's bad, who's right and who's wrong. That's not what a leader does. What a leader does is they bring out the best in people and get them to see the way forward. That's what we need in our country. We don't need this chaos anymore. We need someone who's going to be a new generational leader that brings sanity back to America. Both sides spoke about the role of government and what are appropriate levels of influence it should exert on the private sector and to what end. Let's talk about a big question in the Republican Party right now, and that is what is the role of government and should it, it use its power to go after businesses and private entities that take actions that don't align with conservative values. Governor DeSantis, you used your powers in Florida to take on Disney after the company criticized an education bill that you signed into law. How does that square with the traditional conservative view that small, limited government is best? The proper role of government, if it means every, anything, it's to protect our kids. And I've stood for the innocence of our kids. It is wrong. It is wrong to sexualize the curriculum. It's wrong, and look, my, my wife and I, we've got a first grader, a kindergartner, and a preschooler. This is something that's important to us personally. It's wrong to tell a kindergartner, like Disney wanted to do, uh, that you can change your gender, or tell a third grader that you're born in the wrong body. So I stood up against, yeah, the media didn't like it, the left didn't like it, and Disney didn't like it, and they're the 800-pound gorilla in the state of Florida. Uh, most people, most corporate Republicans would have caved. I stood and I fought for the kids. Uh, we took on Disney and we defeated that and we won that fight and our kids are better off. Now, Nikki Haley sided with Disney. She uh, invited them to South Carolina, uh, even though they were involved in transing kids. Uh, that is not what we need to do. But I think that's similar. She is representative of this corporatist element uh, of the party. For example, 
she supported $900 million in subsidies to Boeing when she was in South Carolina. And then when she got out of office, she took a seat on their board and she made millions of dollars. Then she gave speeches, paid speeches to a lot of Wall Street interests, uh, didn't publish what she said. We don't know what she promised them. Uh, and she made millions of dollars doing that. Now they're the ones that are funding her campaign. So we need to stand up for the people uh, and not bow down to woke corporations. And we know Nikki Haley will cave to the woke mob every single time. Governor Haley, in response. Government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. And what we don't need is government politicizing anything. Because I have never said anything related to the transgender stuff, he says. I have always fought to protect kids. I have always said that boys need to go into boys' bathrooms, girls need to go into girls' bathrooms, that we shouldn't have any gender transitions before the age of 18. Just like we don't have tattoos before the age of 18, we shouldn't have gender transformation or puberty blockers. But I will tell you that it's really interesting that Ron talks about this Disney because Disney has been woke for a long time. They were against the immigration situation that Trump was doing. They were against the Paris Climate Agreement when I did it. They were against the pro-life bill in Georgia. Ron didn't have any problem with that. As a matter of fact, he gave them the largest corporate subsidies in Florida history. He had a tech exemption that he gave didn't give any tech exemptions to anybody but Disney. Yet when they went and criticized him, he got thin skin and suddenly started to fight back. We don't need government fighting against our private industries. Well, we are not woke in South Carolina. I will always invite businesses to come to South Carolina. But the one thing you don't do is government doesn't bully our businesses, and that can't happen. And Ron is determined. Anybody that thank offends you, him, Governor. he goes so, after them and he'll you, use Governor. government. Yes, time for one more question before we get to closing statements, an hour goes by fast. In response to the rising cases of flu, COVID-19, respiratory illnesses, mask recommendations and mandates have returned in six states already, mostly hospitals. In your view, uh, Congressman, when is it appropriate for the federal government to issue mask requirements? Well, first of all, anybody who's ever been in a hospital knows that surgeons and healthcare practitioners who've spent years in school and see the numbers and, and work in laboratories know that masks work. They prevent the transfer of illness. So let me start with this. If we are a country that cares about one another, if we're all patriots, we should be protecting one another. That means if we are sick, we should stay home. That means if we are sick, we shouldn't blow our nose in our hands and then shake hands. We should do it in our Elbows, right? It's not rocket science. Imagine if we had a president who simply told us how to do this a little bit better by taking care of each other. Americans do not respond well to mandates, period. I think we should protect one another. I think it is terribly dangerous right now. We have a trio of terrible viruses going around the country, again, around the world, and we've lost faith in the very government that is supposed to be protecting us. That is the responsibility of presidents. Donald Trump spent that equity. Joe Biden has done almost nothing to restore it. Nothing to restore it. That's exactly what I'll do. I think mask mandates are actually dangerous Thank because you. it's dividing our country. I think all of us should choose to do it when we're sick so we do not get others sick, period. Thank you, Congressman. Mask mandates. Well, we are, we are undergoing a new surge of COVID right now, the largest since the Omicron. And uh, we should be very concerned about that. And we should be very concerned about long COVID. Long haul uh, COVID sufferers is something that the government should be putting far more attention on, uh, not only in terms of treatment, which we'll, we will have with my whole health plan, 
universal health care medicare for all type situation which by the way does as much to proactively create a healthy society in which we will be less vulnerable to such diseases as it does to treat diseases when they are among us i do think it's time to give be giving away some free masks and to give, be giving away some free tests now for people who want them as far as mandates that's left to the states and i agree with dean it's such a divisive topic at this point and with that, the respective debates moved on to the candidates' closing statements. We now have time for closing statements, and we begin with Governor Haley. First of all, I want to thank the good people of Iowa. I have campaigned for 11 months, whether it's driving a combine or holding a pig at a, at a produce area, or whether it's the fact that we've met owners of bakeries and, and small businesses. You know, every one of them knows that we can't go through four more years of chaos. And if it's Donald Trump, there will be four more years of chaos. And we can't be a country in disarray in a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. And we can't go through another nail biter of an election. And if you look at the polls right now, going against Joe Biden, in every one of those head to head polls, Ron doesn't beat Joe Biden. Trump is head to head. On a good day, he might be up by two points. I defeat Biden by 17 points. That's, a, that's bigger than the presidency. That's House, that's Senate, that's governorships, that's down to school board. That's a mandate to get our spending under control and get inflation down. That's a mandate to get our kids reading again and go back to the basics in education. That's a mandate to secure our borders with no more excuses. That's a mandate to bring law and order back to our country. And that's a mandate for a strong America that we can be proud of. We can do this. I know we can do this. If you will join with me in this movement, if you join with me in this fight, I promise you our best days are to come. God bless you. Governor DeSantis. Well, it's been great to visit all 99 counties here in Iowa. I've been able to meet so many friends uh, and really learn about some of the best of America. Uh, Iowa's votes do not need to be corrected by any other state. Uh, you all know what you're doing. Uh, and we have an opportunity in Monday to really change the course of history. Donald Trump's running for his issues. Uh, Nikki Haley's running for her donors' issues. I'm running for your issues, your family's issues, and solely to turn this country around. I'm the only one running that's delivered on 100% of my promises, uh, and I'm the only one running that has beaten the left time and time again, from the teachers' unions to Fauci to the Democratic Party. We need to run under the banner of bold colors that are putting the American people first. We can't run under a banner of pale pastels of the warmed over corporatism, the likes of which is practiced uh, by Nikki Haley. Freedom is on the ballot. Decline is a choice. We have it within our power uh, to fix this country and to turn it around. I am asking for your support in the Iowa caucus on Monday, January 15th. I'll be a president that you can be proud of, and I promise you this, I will get the job done, and I will not let you down. Thank you, and God bless you all. All right, thanks. We've reached the point where we're going to have uh, closing statements. Uh, we flipped the coin earlier, as I mentioned. I'm going to be, uh, i got to keep the, the clock here, so try to keep it uh, right around the 90-second mark so I don't have to cut anybody off. You should be honest, we flipped a penny. I've never seen that before, actually. <laughs> see, times are tough, you see. We had to use a penny. <laughs> um, Look, at, I started this, first of all, thank you. The courage of you all showing up and being participants is beautiful, remarkable, and I love you all. I don't care about your politics, and I mean that sincerely. I started by telling you, I'm gonna say the quiet part out loud. I'm doing it now, and I'm gonna do it as your president. 
and I'm going to end this the same way. Joe Biden should have been right here with us. Today. I agree with that. He, he is taking the Granite State for granted. He is taking this election for granted, and he is taking every single one of you and this entire country for granted. He should be campaigning in New Hampshire. He should be showing up in front of voters. He should be on the ballot in New Hampshire, for goodness sakes. He's the president of the United States of America. And we all know this, but instead we are seeing literally the hypocrisy of democracy. It is not protecting democracy when you remove your competitors from the ballot, as he has done in Florida and North Carolina. It is not protecting democracy when you refuse to even participate in a single debate in the United States of America. It is not protecting the soul of the nation when the nation is more divided than ever. And it is not protecting us when we have an unmitigated disaster at our border and 60% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and 40% cannot afford a $400 emergency. That is not protecting democracy. That's actually why democracy is failing right now, all around the world, because people cannot maintain their lives. It's too expensive. So that's why I'm running for con that's why I'm running for president. That's why I'm in Congress. I'm trying to create change. And I will be that change, a new generation, to represent all of you. Some of you will be in my White House because I need you. If you're ready for it, please go to dean24.com. I would love for you to join the Dean team, join this movement, and replace the past, and let's move to the future. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. One second. You can pause all you want in a moment. Please take your time. We don't need another political car mechanic. The problem is that we're on the wrong road. We don't need another technocrat. Uh, we need someone with vision. We have very difficult problems in this country today. And in addition to all the threats to democracy that Biden has spoken about and that Dean has spoken about, such as the president not even being here, the greatest threat to our democracy is the destruction of the American middle class and the failure of our government to restore it. This is tough. This is a very difficult time. But we have had ancestors who rose to the challenge before. We responded to slavery with, with abolition. We responded to the institutional suppression of women with the women's suffrage movement. We responded to the Gilded Age with the establishment of, of organized labor, and we responded to segregation with the civil rights movement. It's our turn now. We will respond to the institutional greed of a matrix of corporate overlords. That is how we will get out of this mess. We need an economic U-turn. I don't wanna go to Washington and fight for you. I want to go to Washington and co-create with you a new chapter in American history. The same forces I would have to be dealing with in Washington, you have to deal with here in Concord. Because there are undemocratic forces in our country today, just as there have been in other generations. Let's not be the first generation to wimp out on doing what it takes to put this country back on track. Government has become a puppet a system of legalized bribery to the powers of the corporate interests which are their donor base. That will end with me. I will stand up to that. And my presidency will be one in which not only in Washington, but throughout this country, there will be such a sense that we, the American people, are on the move. We will be, once again, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And all of us will know. Let's hear it for Dean yeah. Phillips Thank and Mary Williamson for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. Listening on Sirius XM. Have a great night. Don't forget to vote. And that was dueling debates, folks. That was a lot of work, and assembling the puzzle was challenging. 
but the respective debate moderators and candidates gave me plenty of good material to work with. Overall, on the Democratic side, they didn't really go at each other, they had very similar positions, and owing to the odds against them and the political machine determined to silence them, in my book, they both won, just by having the event, and we benefited from getting a chance to hear them. On the Republican side, that was a little prickly, but more subdued than past debates. They spent a good amount of their time talking about what they would do vice focusing on tearing down their opponent, but that was far from the positive vibe at the Doubletree. In my opinion, DeSantis took the win in this debate. He was consistent, didn't get too rattled, and stayed on message. Haley was kind of annoying. She mentioned that website so many times. I cut all that crap out for you good people. It was egregious and made her sound rather defensive. I hope you all enjoyed the mixtape and are getting excited about letting your voice be heard out there on the primary trail. Vote. I know this stuff can be toxic, but people around the world have died trying to obtain this right that is tossed to us free of charge. Respect it. Cherish it. Use it. Be the change you want to see. I hope you all have a great weekend and we'll talk again next week. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave a comment here and on Podchaser. It helps us know how we're doing and what topics you'd like to hear in the future. Have a great day.